That was the Munster final of 1944. I wasn't at a Rattan Jersey. <laughs> Most people that went to that game had to cycle to the final. Imagine if you asked people to cycle to it now. OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's bang on half past seven this morning. You're very welcome along to OTBAM. It's Jar and Ashling Riley with you this morning. Ashling, how are you? Good morning, Jar. How are you? I'm very well. Um, you were an eyewitness account or uh, an eyewitness for both of the Leinster and Ulster football finals at the weekend. Um, how amazing was the Leinster football final? <laughs> Not so amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, you almost forgot that you had a Leinster final. Like when it got to the end of the game. And I normally rush in to get the post-match interviews. I remember thinking to myself, oh, there's a trophy here. Yeah, there's silverware. So I have a few minutes here just to uh, gather myself. When normally it's a, you know, it's a rush job to, to run down. Um, so obviously they were getting the trophy and everything else. Really subdued celebrations. And obviously the game itself. Look, Dublin scored five goals within the first half. So uh, that killed it very early on. Um, when I thought going into the Leinster final, you know, I was really sort of excited to see a bit of a competition we obviously seen what happened with Meath and I was thinking okay look Kildare are, are up and coming this year it's exciting we've seen it in the league all of that so yeah it was a bit of a letdown and yeah just the whole thing there was no atmosphere in Crow Park um, yeah just, just really dead Was there any atmosphere for the women's game? A little bit, yeah, there was more, more of an atmosphere. I think, um, you know, there was a lot on the line there, the really close rivalry. It's Everybody's fascinated at the minute with Dublin and Mead. You know, it's great to see that. And obviously within Leinster in the women's game, we really needed that as well. So we knew that was going to be close. We've seen the Mead twice previous in the previously early on in the year once in the league and once in in Leinster so we knew it was going to be close but uh yeah it, w- it was still quite dead in terms of, there wasn't a hell of a lot of people there and yeah um sometimes I like seeing them games in a smaller and confined you know home sort of well, venue we, I mean uh it's very hard to put a figure on it but there's a suggestion that Mead might have brought 10,000 to that game Right, mm-hmm. like if that game had been in a, a tight venue where everybody is like struggling to get a ticket, and that, that all of a sudden just lends a, a massive change to it. So, do we need to get away from this whole "it's everybody's dream to play in Croke Park"? Like, it's not everybody's dream to play in Croke Park when the stadium is empty. That you don't, you don't, as a kid, go out to back garden and dream of like when you're when you're commentating on your own scores, the crowd makes noise. There's yeah. not the echoing of seagulls <laughs> that is the theme tune, right? Do we need to get away from this and actually say we need to find venue appropriate venues appropriate to the size of the crowd? Yeah, and start playing games there because like it enhances the experience and the game. Like when we seen say even in the men's game when when they were in Newbridge, you know, like that was fascinating. You know, everyone's closed in, you can hear the crowd, the whole lot. Like it's brilliant to to see that side of it. When it's in Crow Park, you almost get lost and. It's such a big pitch that obviously that lends to Dublin's game. They're well used to it. All of that comes into it too. Totally. And like uh, Tommy Walters was on yesterday and he was talking about pitch size, but how it feels like it changes when the crowd is full. So like it feels tighter, even though some of these pitches are all very similar size, right? Yeah. Uh, That when the crowd is full and when the crowd is empty, it's a completely different experience, which makes sense at a psychological level. Uh, we, We understand that everybody, before you start texting in, going... The pitch size doesn't change physically. I understand. But people make different decisions under pressure. Mm-hmm. And the pressure of the crowd, like that game seemed pretty dramatic. And we're going to come back to this a little bit later on, I know. But 
and there was loads going on in the women's game that if you had had it in Parnell Park for example or even Navin Navin's a bit bigger yeah like would it not have looked better would it not have would there not have been more back and forth would it not just have been a better occasion I think so like Mead now in the first half it, it was five points to one you know it was very low score in that first half that would have been different I'm sure if it was in Park Talton or Parnell Park we seen it earlier in the year when they met in, in Park Talton it was the biggest uh, attendance for a women's game you know rather than the, the, the final it was incredible to see even all the stand the standing area was somewhat full as well like never ever have I ever seen that Park Talton's capacity is 11,000 I didn't realise that that's what it says on Google is that right? would that be right? Uh, probably yeah 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 I'd say so right um, yes but it, it definitely would enhance it to have it in a, in a smaller venue for sure um, I don't think it would have been as low scoring as well um, and I know what you're saying with the pitch side that doesn't really change too much but you feel it you feel it when you're watching it it's it's just that bit different it feels a little bit slower it feels yeah a little bit more dragged out when there's not a big crowd there enhancing it uh, now like what will the players say do you think will they say look it's a, we do want to play in Croke Park it's better for us I don't like and I understand that but if you're trying to get everybody really excited about it mm-hmm. making it like that would have been the standout certainly on uh Saturday and up until the Ulster football final that would have been the standout Gaelic Games moment of the weekend mm-hmm. instead it was like why is this, this it's very empty isn't it it's like uh, you know. and that's what you're talking about and that's not what we want to be talking about no about, you know um, yeah I think no player is going to ever pass up the opportunity to play in Crow Park that's for sure and this current Mead team at the moment, nearly all of them have, would have played there now a few times. They're getting quite used to it, which I never thought I would say. So, look, it's, that's great. They're getting those opportunities. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a tough one. I think they would always like to play in Crow Park. But I think at this point now, when they know they're going face in Dublin, they might say to themselves, look, actually, we'd rather it in a, in a smaller venue. It might be a better game. It might actually suit us better. Um, even though the dream of Crow Park and all of that is great, but is it really as good as you think? No, and they know they're going to get their letter in the year. Like, yeah. It, I mean, I do wonder if there's a, okay, we're now the All-Ireland champions, we want home and away for these games. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> they have a chance to do things differently. They don't have to always, every final is always in Croke Park because that's the rules and that's what we've always done. This is Leinster, that's how we do things. There's like a, oh, we could be clever about this and not have it automatically there. Yeah, I think there's probably the sense of trying to get the women's game into Crow Park for so long. That's probably one of the arguments and that's why it's been there. And obviously then we had the All-Ireland semi-finals that only came in in the last two years. That was massive. So it probably is that... I'd go back to the semi-finals and double, that's totally fine. Yeah, but like it's it, just I the provincials, know. yeah. yeah I, I, um, the league finals as well. But yeah, it, it's tough. Like for us watching, definitely I would rather in a smaller venue. The players, um, I'm sure it's probably divided... I'm sure with the likes of Mead who are experienced now, Dublin who are experienced now, they might say, yeah, smaller venue, when other teams would be like, I'd love to have that chance. Yeah, I, except the other thing is obviously if you, it, if another team was to make the breakthrough in, in the same way that Mead did, it's actually harder for me to make that breakthrough in Croker against the Dubs, particularly when this is like a star-studded mm-hmm. uh, multi-all-Ireland win in Dublin team. So um, anyway, we'll come back to this in a moment. If you've got a view on it, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock we are talking uh, no sorry Uh, Owen has been out doing interviews and it's Michael McKernan and Shane Walsh we're going to bring you those in about 8 minutes time Jenny Claffey is going to talk tennis 
Sports pages at 8.35 with uh, Carl this morning. Andy Mitten's going to join us at 8.50. Ron Nogara is going to join us at 10 past nine, talking about his victory over Leinster at the weekend and then some own Redden analysis from half nine for you this morning. Let's just go back to the um, the Leinster and Ulster football finals. So um, I haven't seen that much criticism from most people of the Leinster final. It's been very much, oh, the dubs are back, jacks are back. Mm-hmm. Um, but like... Uh, all the criticism that has been basically blocking up the newspapers and TV coverage over the last three days has been how crap the Ulster football final was. So you were there, eyewitness account. Mm-hmm. You're in Dealey Plaza for this. What goes on? Well, even from the minute I arrived, like I've been told for years now that, you know, Clonus, Ulster final day, it's such an experience. So when I got this game, I was absolutely delighted, really looking forward to it. I arrive, you're sort of brought down back roads because of the traffic, but really well done. They sort of stop the cars a good good um, mile or two out and they actually make you walk in. But obviously I got to go on in because I had equipment and that. So even just arriving, there was just, yeah, even that buzz was there. You know, the guards were all over Clonus. There was so many guards everywhere you turned. And then you get there, obviously, the the other final was on beforehand. So there's there's loads of buzz about the place and so many flags. Like, you know, years ago when you used to watch videos uh, of like the in Crow Park and the All-Ireland Finals with flags everywhere. And then everyone sort of stopped bringing the flags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why. Yeah, I but think they it was, stopped at the, at the, I think the, so, the bamboo canes? Pe- yeah. <laughs> and people couldn't see and things like that. So I think that's why they stopped it. But it was like that. It was like years ago of every person seemed to have a flag and the the colour and obviously the band out beforehand just just really good buzz I was like this is brilliant like I was really enjoying it and then the game itself cagey enough start both teams trying to figure each other out wasn't a score for about I think it was 12 minutes into the game until we seen the first score so obviously yeah not great you know you you would have liked to have seen it more attacking but but you understand it's a, it's an Ulster final that's what I was thinking like anyway you, you get it um and then I got a message, I think it was through the second half, from a few different people being like, oh, this is grim, isn't it? And I was like, this is grim. I was like, I don't, what, what did he mean? And I, I, Malik O'Rourke was with me and I turned to him and he said, oh, I've seen a few things on, on Twitter, all right. You know, people calling it out saying this is, this is rubbish. What is this? This isn't football. And I sort of thought, I was like, geez, I don't feel that at all. I was just so enthralled. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. I get it. I know people are listening now going, what, is she serious? But what I mean is, it's an Ulster final. It's tit for tat. It's one score here, there. You know, there's these players that are, you know, are dying to win their first Ulster title for their county with with within Derry. So I get it. And I could feel that the whole way through. So I got the message and I was like, oh, and I text back to one going, geez, doesn't feel like that here. And they were like, oh, maybe it's the commentators actually that are swaying me. And I was like, what What are they talking about? Because obviously I can't hear that while I'm on air too. So uh, only afterwards did I hear and, and see all the, the commentary around it all. But for me, from start to finish, it was a brilliant experience. I hadn't actually experienced anything like that in... I don't know when I have because even Crow Park for All-Irelands you're not allowed on the pitch obviously you know all of that is a bit more subdued because they have to control it when it was chaos obviously on the pitch after in a good way you know it was just brilliant scenes so I loved it from start to finish I have to say What happened at the end of the game Like, we're, we're, so uh, you can't go down and interview the Derry players in the normal media area because they're not there they're on the pitch for like 
Is it an hour afterwards probably? <laughs> they were still there when I was leaving. I've never seen that because I'm there till like the death because you're doing interviews uh, right till the end. Um, and normally players are, are well gone and you're on your laptop on your own sending things back. But they were still there. Connor Glass was up in the stand when I was leaving, still signing autographs with kids and he wasn't out of his gear. So I don't think he got inside. Um, yeah, like normally I would try run on the pitch afterwards and yeah, you couldn't. They put up bar- um, barricades all around sort of say the entrance into the into the media area. So they put that all around and let the players sort of still be on the pitch. But then they obviously cornered off the fans. So there was a few fans allowed in there. So I was in that area and I seen Connor Glass straight after. So I ran over to him and interviewed him and he was completely hoarse and he, like in the interview. So I was like, obviously you couldn't hear a thing from the, the crowd noise. He's like, couldn't hear a thing. I was shouting when you're calling for the ball. And yeah, so he, he they were just ecstatic. And obviously you've seen the scenes of everybody out on the pitch, the flags, it was amazing and you could really see what it meant and obviously for the Donegal um, people, Declan Bonner, look, I, I spoke to him after as well. Devastation, like just really, really hurt. I think it was one of the, the toughest defeats. Yeah, and I mean, I understand why because it feels like they have the players to play a different game and a game that might have been successful against that dairy team. So I'm sure they're second-guessing themselves horribly. Yeah, big time. Um, I think as well, I couldn't understand why at the end of normal time, when it was level and they had the ball, I, I, I turned to Malachi and I was like, are they playing for extra time? Do they want extra time? Because I surely in my head said, Derry or Donegal in extra time. I don't know why. I just maybe watching on the game, some of the lads, some were cramping. I was like, I think I would fancy Derry. Um, yeah, so I thought it was so strange that they didn't attack up the field at that point. You know, to to try and create something, maybe it feeds into that whole actually afraid to lose the ball here, you know, and it comes back to bite us. So we'll just hold the ball and go to extra time. It does seem strange. Mm. I, um, so uh, Michael says it's tradition, Ger. We don't have to change everything. I, I, are you talking about the playing games in smaller venues? That it's. I mean, it, it used to actually be tradition to play games around the country. In there was home and away in most of these. We've only moved to Croke Park in the last thirty years for like Leinster quarterfinals, semi-finals, finals, All Ireland quarterfinals. There's even been I don't know if you remember when the American football made the game end up in Limerick, and it was sensational between Mayo and Kerry. It was like one of the best, one of the great GA occasions. Mm-hmm. It was like no, it has to be in Croke Park. It has to be in Croke Park. It has to be a half full Croke Park, no atmosphere, or an absolutely teeming Gaelic grounds. Or Porky Cueve or wherever. Yeah. I think the best games that I've been to over the last like year or two out covering games have definitely been in smaller venues, for sure. Uh, Jared Lynch says, I think it's very different when you're at the game, understandable, and you can take in the atmosphere, etc. But as a spectacle, it was brutal. I mean, if you want to uh, go and see a spectacle, go and see an art gallery. Like this, <laughs> the Ulster title was on the line. And so Derry are doing what they need to do to win that game. And I don't know, I, I just think that, uh, I think that if... Um, I do think that it depends on where you watched it. Certainly, everybody who got in touch with us who were watching on the BBC were like, oh, I understood exactly what both teams were trying to do, why it was happening, uh, where over the course of the season they've developed and evolved all this, and um, and somebody wasn't chirping in your ear going, this is shit. Because like, that has an effect, and that actually you know makes you think a certain way. So it sways your, your sort of opinion, and it influences you to think a certain way, I would think. So watching that game, I probably would have came away thinking like that, but because I couldn't hear it, I didn't think like that, you know. 
Barry Kearney says, I was flicking between the BBC coverage and the RTE for the Ulster final. RTE analysts were slating the game, whereas the BBC pundits were calling the game gripping. Pundits control the narrative. I mean, I would hope that people can actually think for themselves. Mm. I, I thought that we were at a stage now where everybody is watching enough. Maybe there's just not enough league football on because you don't see Derry. Like, you, we didn't see Derry week in, week out in yeah. the league. And, um, you know, we were reading match reports and catching some highlights of them. But... Um, I, the exact same response was made to the Donegal team that came up because people couldn't understand what they were doing. They didn't know what their style of play was and so it was therefore sick, an abomination. And the same was said about Tyrone a decade before that. Yeah. And Tyrone were actually one of the best teams ever to play Gaelic football. Like that Tyrone team that won three All-Irelands was festooned with brilliant athletes, ballers and an amazing style that completely changed the game but because Spillane called it puke football and because uh, Colin O'Rourke said he'd eat his hat if uh, Dewar was ever uh, was it an all-star or man of the match or a footballer of the year or whatever we were told oh this is terrible you can't you can't enjoy this but actually it was sensational stuff like literally the evolution of the game before our eyes and the two lads like well it was better in our day and it really wasn't <laughs> no. like it really really was not better in their day so no and I think it's not always the way that Derry plays like there was a lot more kick passing in the Derry Monaghan game so if that's what you're looking for and they just changed up their their style and their tactics because they they wanted to win an Ulster title you know so I, I don't think that's always the only way they play they just change things up because you know that's the the style that they needed to in order to, to go out and beat. Paul Quirk says, Ashley is right about being at the game. Let's get more fans to games by bringing ticket prices down and you'll get great games in return. It would be interesting to see if it was like a fiver to go to the Leinster final. Would everybody, would it be 80,000? Like, mm-hmm. is that the way to try and get people back? I mean, obviously the way to get people back is to have a meaningful championship and throw out those ridiculous structures, but that's not going to happen. Um, Jared Lynch says, there should be a rule where no more than 10 from one team are allowed in their own half. The game is perfect. The game keeps getting screwed by people making stupid changes. And if you remember, like, if we think back to the All-Ireland Finals where two teams were evenly matched, like Kerry Dublin or Kerry Mayo, those games are brilliant games. Mm -hmm. Again, those games are literally some of the best Gaelic football you've ever seen because the strength and conditioning, the tactical and technical analysis and the planning that goes into it is far better than it has been ever before because the backroom teams have got bigger. They've become conditioned from the time they're 15, 16. It's just, the sport is really good when you put two teams of equal standing against each other and when somebody explains to you what's going on as opposed to telling you, oh, I don't understand this, so this is no good. Yeah, absolutely. Even fitness levels, all of that is through the roof now. So they can go back and, and get forward. So if it is all men or women behind the ball, they're coming back and they're, they're getting forward and attacking too. And we've seen that with Derry. Um, the Dublin Mead women's rivalry has replaced the men's rivalry. And uh, there ain't no men's rivalry coming back anytime soon. Well, we won't lose hope. We won't lose I hope. Think, I think it's time for us to lose hope. <laughs> have you lost hope with Kildare? It's the hope that kills you. <laughs> I know, but you need it. You have to keep. You have to keep some hope. With thankfully, yes, we do. We have it now in the women's game. It's fascinating. Everybody's always talking about it. You know, if you meet anyone, you say you're from Mead. It's now, geez, the 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 women's team. They're a brilliant team. Like this is brilliant. You know, that's the first thing people say now. Um, and they, they've changed the, the Leinster rivalry completely because we didn't have that at all. Um, but yeah, no, it is great to see. Obviously now they've met three times this year. Um, Dublin won twice, Mead won once. And with the game itself um, at the weekend, it really came down to a few of the refereeing decisions. 
Like there was a, a same bin for Moira Shocknessy for Meath um, for a foot block which resulted in a penalty as well. So she she was on the sideline and it was a penalty. They scored the penalty and that really sort of changed the game. Now, Dublin, I still feel, were better on the day and they deserved the win, to be honest. But that really did change the game. few questions around, was it a foot block? It was sort of a low foot block, which I suppose that is still a foot block. Talk yourself into it there. <laughs> yeah, because if it was higher, everyone would have been like, oh yeah, grand. But because her foot was pl- still planted on the ground, sort of, it's hard to describe. It was. It, was, it absolutely was a foot block, um, but that did change the game. But the, there was a Vicky Wall yellow card as well, which didn't have an effect on the game as such because it was so late in the game. So she got a sim bin. But I thought it was. It, I, I'd actually be interested to hear what listeners think. Like I, I couldn't really understand it. So Vicky's game is always about these power runs. So she buys her time. She like wait till that ball comes by her and then she makes a run they give it back to her and she goes apace and they obviously knew this and wanted to stop that so people were looking out for Vicky to block her runs away from the ball so the ball could be over the other side of the pitch and then Vicky's making her run this way say they run to her block her run because they know what she's doing Yeah. so that's what happened they, they ran in front of her they were trying it the whole game really they were trying to get in her head and they ran in front of her and she ran into them knocked one of the girls over I think it was Lindsay Davy and uh, then she, uh, play went on and eventually then they called Vicky back and gave her a yellow card for that right so I don't know is that saying it's Bargin but she didn't have the ball is it I'm not fully sure but the type of thing you want to get out in front of the referees for the next time and say you keep an eye out on what the opposition are doing to us they're blocking our runs and they, that's a third man tackle and so therefore yeah. yeah it seemed like it was a call from the sideline which it was it was very strange um, I didn't agree with it now it didn't have any impact on the game though for ages now we've heard that she's heading to Australia it was confirmed this week and, and what's happening there is there concern that like she's going to like the lifestyle so much as a professional athlete and uh, the seasons aren't as perfectly aligned next year and forevermore and this might be it um, yeah absolutely like obviously to, to see Vicky go she's a massive loss to the Mead setup. I think a lot of their game works around Vicky but for her for herself for to be able to go out and be a professional athlete you know that that's dream stuff you know I don't think any of us would ever have, have thought that would have been possible in, possible in the women's game yeah. only that the AFLW have given this opportunity so for her amazing what an opportunity you know it's great to see but yeah massive loss to me unless she comes back and it's like you know totally perfect um, maybe she's good enough where in Australia they're like okay we'll have you for half a season that's fine Oh, yeah, because she's going over after the All-Ireland campaign when a lot of the girls that are signed up to go this year aren't playing with their county. So she, there, yeah. Yeah, she's um, already in a bit of a unique situation in that regard. So she obviously has a little bit of power that way that obviously she is that good, which she is. So she can sort of maybe have to, to make a few of those calls and say, look, I'm going to come over that bit later. I'm going to finish off with Mead. So hopefully that's the case. We obviously would love that of Mead. Yeah. You know, you'd want her still there playing with the county, especially for championship anyways. Um, but I think she's going to have a massive effect over there, just the type of game she plays. The explosion in the league and the fact that there's ready-made athletes here means it looks like there's probably going to be a higher level of recruitment from the women's game than there is from the men's game, which is kind of natural because the league is a start-up league. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. And like loads of them will do two or three years and come back as you know fully formed professional athletes with a completely different outlook and then inject that back into the game. So it's a, exactly. it's a carousel. Yeah, it's a positive thing. Okay, this week Owen was in Croke Park chatting with Tyrone's Michael McKernan ahead of their huge match with Armagh this weekend. Keep an eye out 
particularly for the question here about young Canavan, who maybe a little bit of the cat getting out of the bag here with the response, and also to Shane Walsh in the aftermath of Galway's Connacht final victory. Here's what McKernan and Walsh had to say. Enjoy. The El Clasico of uh, Ulster football this weekend, not in the Ulster Championship. How much are you looking forward to that this weekend, Armagh? Um, yeah, look, it's, it's one of the games, I would say, the Armagh players are the same. Um, there's that rivalry between the two counties. It was back in like 2003 and five in them years. Um, so hopefully, hopefully over the next few years it's coming back um, and it's another one to look forward to. What do you remember of 2005? <sighs> a, good, a good bit. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's, I barely remember last year. Never mind 2005 and three. I can remember 2003, the free kick um, Canavan hit against Armagh. Um, I was at that there. So, Remember that there, and then 2005. I actually remember 2003 better than five. So, but I know there were good games. Do you remember how you felt at that point, seeing Tyrone get over the line for the first time? Um, yeah, well, well, I actually didn't. Even, I didn't get to the final. I got to the semi-final. Um, but I was in the auntie's house in Aglish, and I can just remember. I think I was just running about the house. Um, all my ones were down. It was just, just even great for the county. Um whenever you got that first one, and it just gives you that wee bit of hope that there is more in the future. Speaking of the Canavans, has Rory been in training with you yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has. Um, he's another one that we'll have to try mark. <laughs> It'll be difficult. <laughs> Which of the two Canavans is harder to mark? Uh, oh, I don't know. It's, they're both exceptional. Um, they're different types of players, um, and they both have their own threats. Like So now the two of them, they're not nice marking either of them. So does he only come in a couple of weeks ago now after the 20s season finishes or had he been in and around all year? No, so him um, and three others, uh, Michael McLean and Niall Davlin and Steve Donaghy have all came in after the under-20s. So they've given us a, a wee bit of a lift. Um, it was great seeing them winning and has given us a wee bit of lift and chin and they're pushing us on and making it more competitive. So it's great to have them in. McLean looks like he's overage for senior. <laughs> I, he's a monster now. Um no, he's he's massive and he's skillful too. Um, so he's another asset to Tyrone. That it's it's just great to have him on board with us. From your own perspective, then, even not just inside in training, but when you look at all the, the different players that you've marked this season and could potentially mark before the end of this season, uh, how much do you relish that opportunity of the, the different sorts of players, the different sorts of styles of attack that you come up against, and how much can you actually get used to that as you get older and more wiser in your intercounty career? Um, yeah, it's it's great. It's great even being able to compete against them, um, and it does. It's it's a challenge, obviously, for me, Potty, and uh, Ron McNamee in the full back line. That we're always kind of looking at who's going to be there. Um, but we've massive challenge with the RMA forwards this weekend. Um, so look at the the season. We've uh, we've marked some great players already this year. Um, but we'll have three three in the full forward line for RMR that's going to be a handful at the weekend and we're doing it one game at a time but um, we'll just worry about the three that RMR pick You don't have to reveal who you're going to be marking but how do the three of you generally divvy it up is it physicality is it pace is it quality um, just re- it just really depends um, I'm lucky enough I kind of get the job that I, if somebody is kind of playing further out I can go further out and maybe run up the pitch a wee bit more don't know if the other two would be too happy about it but <laughs> Uh, we'll deal with that, but um, no, it's just it's 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 more picked the if we maybe see the team before or something like it'll just is whoever um, Fergal or Brian will tell us.
Was it hard the week after the Derry match? Yeah, um, it was disappointing. It's been disappointing basically every week since it. Um, even watching it at the weekend, like you're, it's good to have an our team competing in Ulster and get um, get it. It's, it's competitive, like, but obviously you want to. Be, we want Trone to be winning, um, but it's it is hard whenever you lose anything. Um, it's hard. I would say Dublin were the same last year watching us. Um, I would say they were second watching us win it. So no, it's it's just if your county doesn't win, um, you're not really going to be too happy, are you? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. How do you manage to, to get that right then before Armagh this weekend? I, I assume that as players who've won in All-Ireland, your management don't actually need to tell you too much about what went wrong. When you look at the scoreboard, you, you know that it wasn't a, a great day at the office. So are, are they hard on you or did they go a little bit easy on you or, or how do they manage to build that confidence back up before this weekend? Um, it, it, it has to be player-driven as well. Um, like The managers can tell us what to do and give us the instructions and everything but if we don't go out on the pitch and perform like against Donny or against Derry um, we didn't perform to what we would have um, we were given the instructions and all it was all planned out and we were prepared right but it was just on the day um, the players it's it's, 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 it's relies on the players they're, they're, they're the ones on the pitch um, so look we know what we need to do Um Armagh, as I've said, they beat us twice already this year. They beat us convincingly in the league. They're a very good start. Um, they're very fit. They're physical, um, and we know the challenge. And we can't, we can't look ahead of Armagh um, or anything. We will have to get the performance right to even compete with them. That game, the league was a nice, friendly one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, so something like that. Um, no, look, it was, it was one of them games that. Look, the the four boys and I'd say uh, Greg, Greg McCabe was probably the same. Like it, he felt they let the team down. We just felt we let our team down. Um, and even maybe give Trone a bad look, but it's it's one that both teams all I'd say have learned from. Like finally, then are you kind of easing yourself in or feel more comfortable in the, the role as as a leader in this team? Now, obviously, there's been a few people who who stepped away from the squad, a few experienced players. You mentioned there that it's a it's a player led environment when when things aren't that their best in the camp so as somebody who's been around the panel now for a few years do you find yourself slotting into the leadership shoes a bit easier um look if there's something to be said um i don't think much boys would have any issue saying it like um it's it like it's to benefit each other so if somebody if somebody needs to talk to somebody they will it doesn't matter what age or how long they've been there like the under 20s if they see something from watching us earlier in the year on the only in, um, we had taken it on board, but there's still the likes of Nam Morgan, McNamee, Potty, Matty Donnelly, all them older boys that have been about and know, know a lot more than me probably. <laughs> so how many Canavans are we going to see on the pitch this weekend? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's not my choice. <laughs> Shane, you said after the win on Sunday that it was a particularly sweet Connacht final to win. Why was that? I suppose the big one was probably the fact that we'd won in front of our own supporters. Galway hadn't done that since 2005 and like none of the group, our current group, like had done that either. So like it was just 
that was probably the sweetest aspect of Sunday was the fact that along with the performance it was our own family friends everyone around Galway got to see it in front of their own eyes and it was just great like and it was great for the group because a lot of lads won their first kind of title as well on Sunday so yeah no just plenty to enjoy from Sunday and I'm sure the lads are still enjoying it but it'll be nice now because I know Park will be keen now to get the heads down again for the next four weeks Does it feel as well when you talk about the sweetness that this Galway team have always been good enough to produce that sort of result over the last couple of years and maybe Park's first year got interrupted by COVID and there were other issues here and there that this year finally you've got to prove yourselves and just what you can do? Yeah, I suppose, look, we, we were probably, we were unlucky in some, in some regards, I suppose, with COVID, but, but like also with, you know, even we felt like we left, let ourselves down last year in getting relegated from Division 1, so there's plenty of motivation behind us getting our act together, and, you know, but to a man, like every single player in that dressing room has put in some shift over the last couple of months, and, you know, even the last three years, even through COVID, because like, there were some dark times there where you're just, lads were training individually by themselves, and it's very difficult, like, you know, it's a difficult place to be when you're used to a team environment, and then you're back as an individual, but uh, no, to a man, everyone dug in, they, they put in the work, and you know, everyone got the reward there on Sunday, which is great, just great elation there in the dressing room. Have you watched the goal back yet? I watched it once actually. Mark, you were just on to me about it earlier. Um, yeah, funny. I actually forgot the second, the second kind of dummy because I remember right there was one. I said if there was, if uh, Cahill buys this dummy, I said I could be in for goal here, and I didn't even remind, remember it. The last thing, the next thing I remember was Keen O'Neill telling me keep it low. He said stop kicking the ball high, keep it low if you're going for goal. And lucky enough, went in the corner. So Keen O'Neill is giving you goal scoring advice. Uh, he likes to give me all sorts of advice, Keen. He's he's a bit of an expert, really. He's a very hard man to catch out, so he's Keen. So you want to be prepared. With with 150 things on him to, uh, no, but Keen, Keen, look, Keen's been very good for the group like just his, his understanding of you know, everything even outside football and what lads are coming in from like he's just a very good like you know, very nice fella Keen. like and even I know I chat to him probably a bit more than other lads in the way because he's head of P down in the sports town in uh, MTU uh, Cork and I'm doing P now as well in college so it's just great to kind of have that uh, experience in around you as well to chat to you say there, which is interesting, that you didn't even know that you did the dummy until you watched it back. So it, it, it's pure instinct then, a lot of what goes into the mechanics of that goal. Yeah, I always said, like, that's probably something for me is, like, I play on instinct and, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. You're obviously, you're, you're practicing enough to sh- hope it's always going to be good. But, yeah, no, you just have to, you have to go as you see it. And, Joe, on the back of my mind, I'm kind of saying, if I'm not looking at a defender, but I'm expecting one to come, I'm going to shift inside. And, yeah, it's just, look, it's one of those that came off. And I know the lads to be slagging me sometimes in training that I overcomplicate things. But I like to think that was one, one that came off for me the last day. It wasn't bad. When you get into that position, are you always thinking goal rather than just get it over the bar? Ah, yeah. Well, you're, when you're forward, your your instinct is goal, goal, goal. Uh, and if you can't score a goal, you settle for a point. That's kind of the way you you try and think, anyways. But look, it all depends on the okay, like the way the play comes. But you know, if you get a ball in the middle of space and you think you can see a picture to goal, you're going to be trying to rattle the net. What's it like playing with some of the forwards, especially numbers-wise anyway, some of that full forward line like, like Comer and Finnerty? It feels that you've all got very different attributes that could bamboozle the defence to a certain extent. I, I suppose, look, I'm, I'm looking up, I've been playing with Damo since pretty much I started, both of us started around similar time and like we call him the digger, he just he kick any kind of ball to Damo and he's more likely going to come out with it and probably his man will be on the ground sore from hitting off to him or something. But uh, I like, he's in like, it's funny because Damoff doesn't get the credit he deserves in regards to the skill he has it possesses because just his, air, his ability in the air but also his, he's able to kick off two feet he's able to score goals score points able to uh, lay a ball off like he laid off the ball for my goals the last day and then you've Rob like an 
Rob's just a phenomenal sharpshooter. Like he will literally score off one step. He just gets a ball, and if he's anywhere around that scoring zone, he's just he's lethal and he shows it. And Sunday, like you give a forward of that caliber space, they're going to punish you. And you look, but again, that all comes back to the work that goes on from from our goalkeeper up. Like because in fairness, to the lads, like they are the ones stopping the scores going the far side and then getting the ball up to us as well. And Joe, you know, they deserve huge credit for that as well because they've got their stick. But in fairness to them, to a man, they've all. Applied themselves really well from Liam, Sean, Joe, Jack there at the back, Joe, really helping us. And like when you get the ball up front quickly in space, Joe, the world's our oyster as a forward. Like whereas if you don't, then you're having to work that bit harder as well for us. And lucky enough, the backs were doing a lot of the donkey work for us the last day. You talk about playing in space. How much are you looking forward to getting back out in that pitch? I look. I said I only got a brief spelling it there for the league final, and you know, any time you get to play in Crow Park, it's, it's a special pitch and such a historic place to play. And look for us. We're obviously focused on the quarter final now in a couple of weeks, and just looking forward to it. Like, as in, to play in Crow Park at any stage of your career is unbelievable. Like, so, you know, we just have to make a count now. The next day we go out there. OTB. All right, it's eight minutes past eight. You're welcome back to OTBAM. Uh, it's time for us to turn our attention to ten- tennis, and I'm delighted to say Jenny Claffey is with us in studio. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here today, guys. You were sitting outside. I was like, I didn't recognise you because you're like not behind a Zoom screen. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, the French Open so far has been pretty good. It's been dramatic. There's been good storylines. And yet we seem to have arrived almost imperceptibly at the women's semi-final day today. It feels like there hasn't been enough made of the women's side of the draw. And that's been a kind of a narrative running this week. Yeah, there's been a bit of controversy this week surrounding the, the timings and scheduling of the women's game. Um, the tournament director, Anne Mimresno, has come out yesterday to say that um, the reason for this uh, is basically that uh, the men's game is more appealing to viewers and must be where the money is at. So um, a lot of the players are beginning to speak up now at the, this, their distaste for this issue. Um, you see, look at some of, some of the scheduling this week, uh, the they call it the graveyard slot, the first matches of the day and nearly all but one match has been a woman's game um, and then also they've introduced the night matches and only one of the 11 nights of those have been women's matches so there's not enough being done there for women. Um. Is the is the because there was a bit of controversy, a tiny bit of needle between Nadal and Djokovic about the the time that that was on. Uh, Nadal felt like he could pick because he's the king of Paris mm-hmm. and he wanted uh, the middle of the afternoon uh, Djokovic wanted the night time because apparently that has a significant impact on clay I don't know enough about this but it was enough for them to have a little bit of a beef about it and that beef seemed to carry on to the post-match where um, whatever frostiness exists between them it, it, so it's obviously a big deal and it's been talked about this week Yeah well I think the schedule, that, that match particularly the scheduling of that was maybe more for TV and viewers um, The Nadal wanted to play that match during the day because the surface as you mentioned there is a little bit more favourable to him the clay is faster during the day when it's warmer like Uh, much faster to the point where they can notice not I wouldn't say enough that it would win or lose a match but I'd say it's enough to to put a little bit more pressure on Djokovic maybe when Nadal's playing against him because Nadal plays with so much spin the ball will kick up off the clay and that will be able to keep Djokovic back a bit further whereas in the evening time the clay is a little bit heavier so it's a little bit slower so that would be more favourable to Djokovic and this is because of the weather this is literally because it's hotter and the 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 tiny few degrees is going to have an impact. I guess if you're at the level where they're at, where they've played each other a gazillion times and they know each other's game so well, any tiny little bit of something that you feel like you're getting is going to help. Yeah, definitely. I think that that was kind of what Djokovic was looking for that evening match because he thought that might be more favourable for him. And then he got it. 
yeah but it didn't work no it didn't yeah Nadal though is just so dominant at the moment and especially in as you said the king of clay in Paris like this is his home tournament he's only ever lost three times there in the last 17 years so I think uh, it's surprising he didn't get his way Nadal but it just shows the power of the media there that the that that match was put on in the evening and that's about TV viewership it's not like so and that's what we're talking about here with the, the women's game is that they haven't had the opportunity to showcase so there's a bit of chicken and egg here is that these these uh, women's players are not as well known as the men's because they're not on TV at the prime spot and so they're not on the TV in the prime spot because they're not as well known as the men's and the way around we <laughs> exactly, go exactly yeah, yeah so how do you improve it then you know if you don't give them the chance yeah, well, I think uh, with the introduction of um, Amelie Resmo as the tournament director in the French Open this year, that definitely was um, giving confidence to the women's game that they would be more likely to promote the women's game. Um, but I just think that the the fact that the men are, as I said, in the uh, in the spotlight all the time, it's not giving those stars of the women's game a chance to get well known, and that feeds into the fact that people are saying, "Why is there no uh, big stars in the tennis game?" Because we're not seeing them on the screen. That's that's the big issue there. And it's so surprising from someone who's been there and been in the spotlight has won these major tournaments to speak like that like I was quite shocked when I read her comments yeah I mean especially how she was very um, nonchalant about expressing that the men's game was more appealing you know um, the backlash of that then is of course the players saying that like how can we how can we get into the spotlight if you're not giving us the, the chance they just have to give them a, the chance and then like we of course will then begin to see them more get more known with the names more familiar with the games um, the game styles etc of those players but yeah that, that seems to be a big issue now that chicken and egg um, Is there going to be any fallout? Is it is is she going to change it's kind of too late now right because like today's semi-final day and there's not much opportunity for her to make amends for this no I think next year there's going to have to be a change but the the WTA have come out now the women's organisation to speak about their um, how unhappy they are about it as well so there will definitely be change going forward based on that okay talk to us about the two semi-finals today Coco Goff is kind of in the papers in this part of the world um, I guess because we've been following her for a number of years and it feels like she's uh beginning to deliver on the the promise that she's shown is that fair yeah I think yeah she's been in the spotlight since she shot to fame and when she was 15 there three years ago after she beat uh, Venus Williams in Wimbledon um, and then I think she struggled a little bit with, with that fame and her game has kind of always been there but I think she's suffered a little bit off court like and mentally with the pressures of, of being a star but she's shown in this um, Grand Slam and then the last few tournaments running up to this that she's in good form she's serving very well she's playing her game really well controlling the ball um, and I think that she's going to be a threat today versus Trevisan T- talk to us about Travis Ann. Who is she? She's, well, a relatively unheard name. She's the 59th ranked um, player in the world. Uh, she's an Italian player. She's had a really interesting background as well. Um, in the last, this year, she's had 10 consecutive match wins, having coming in off a win, uh, her first title in Morocco last week. So she's on a streak at the moment. But prior to this, she's had spoken out in the media about uh, her battle with anorexia and how she had to take four years off to, off the professional tour to deal with that. So it's great to see a comeback of, of that sorts now. And um, two years ago, she got to the quarterfinal of the French Open as well. So she is comfortable in Roland Garros and on the clay. So it'll be an interesting matchup because two very different styles. Travis Allen will be more of a traditional clay court player where she's uh, more defensive offensive and plays with a lot of spin whereas Goff will be coming in and trying to be a little bit more aggressive and, and dictate the way she plays What What is Coco's Goff's game then? Where, where On what surface would you expect her game to be the most fluent and successful? 
I would think that a hard court would suit her a bit better because it'll be a bit faster and she's able to play with a little bit more power so she can be a bit more dominant whereas on the clay you've got a little bit more time on the surface um, and not as many winners are hit so I think uh, a hard court or even a grass court would suit her style because she plays so fast Okay so you expect Goff to win this? I would expect Goff to come true that that semi-final yes Okay and okay the other one is uh Tricky, tricky names to pronounce for us this morning as we were practicing in the ad break here. Cheviantek uh, versus Christina. <laughs> there you go, Give it a go. Um, what's going to happen in this one? I think all the talk is about Cheviantek uh, at the moment. She is the the star of the women's game, and um, she's on a thirty three match winning streak, five tournaments in a row. She's the world number one. She's really on form, and um, she's coming up against Kazakh. Kina of uh, Russia who is also on form has shown pres- results in the French Open in previous years as well she's also been in the top 10 but Sviantec is the dominant player of, of the women's game at the moment to look out for in today's match we would want to see um, Sviantec using her big forehand to dictate play staying up close to the baseline trying to control the rallies whereas you'll see Kazakina hanging back a little bit trying to defend because she plays a little bit more defensive game but she's going to have to try to impose herself with by playing a little bit flatter because Schwantek will just be dictating and overpowering from the baseline. Uh, obviously, Schwantek has, has won this before and, and kind of knows what this is all about. She's only 21, so are we looking at the birth of like a dominant force over the next period of time? I think that she is one to look out for. I know we've mentioned the likes of like Osaka in previous years and, and even this year she's done well, but I think Schwantek is really the, the woman of the moment in the women's game. She has the game to be the best as, as she is the number one at the moment um, she also has incredible poise and mental strength which we see she travels with her um, psychologist full time and attests a lot of her success to having her psychologist alongside her um, which is obviously shown on court because she's so tough mentally she's also physically very strong she has all the shots in her repertoire I think that she is the woman to, to dominate the game um, Like the, it feels like there's a generation kind of even to, as I said she's just turned 21 is that right just yeah yeah, yeah. so okay so um with her and the that generation who are just behind her it looks like we're about to reach a stage where we're going to be seeing these week in week out in the uh late slot and the french open over the next coming yeah. few years like it's kind of weird they didn't take the opportunity to establish them as stars this time isn't it yeah yeah it's it's a, it's a real shame it's very disappointing that we haven't got a chance to see these stars up in, in the lights you know and um, but i think in the, in the coming years shantik will be up there with the likes of osaka and like they could be a rivalry in years to come you know and there's a few other players maria sakari and sabalenka those hard hitters who also will be pushing and i think we're going to see those names in future names in, in the next few years um with big big rivalries Maybe not quite like the big four of the men's game where you had Nadal, Murray, Djokovic and Federer. But I do think we were to look out for those names in the next. Was Raducanu going to join them or was that like a flash in the pan? Yeah, that's a, she's an interesting one. She has an amazing game. Her, her like her game is suited to be the top of the of the women's game, but she's just I'm not sure she's quite caught up there, mature like maturity wise and um, mentally. As I said, that's a huge part of the game. So she's just shot to fame, and that's a huge thing, especially with the Brits. They're so. Um, you know, the, she's a star in, in the making, but they oh, think, straight away, yeah, yeah, straight like, away, and and then as soon as you start to fail, it's like, oh, we knew all along, we were just building you up to put yes, you down. Yes, there is that narrative with the Brits, oh, and especially in tennis, and it's with everything, but you can see it in the tennis. So I think they've jumped on the bandwagon of Emma Raducanu who's going to be the next big thing. But I think she might take a little bit uh, longer to get to that, to stay at that top, the consistency at the top of the game. But she does have the game definitely to be in the top. Uh, 
is it more difficult for the women who break through at an early stage in the women's game than it is for the men's? Because, you know, you're talking about um, various players having to deal with either anorexia or the, the difficulty of being famous really quickly. It seems like that happens less in the men's game. And maybe it happened less in the men's game because the, the big four were there and so we saw fewer people break through and be put up on that pedestal so quickly. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think, that, as you said, that those four were so dominant for so long that there was n- nobody was breaking through there. But there were those on the periphery, like the likes of Zverev, who's now in the semi-final today. Um, he's a really big name player who's breaking through. Alcaraz, the young Spaniard, he's 19. That's really unheard of to have such a young player in the, in the men's game at, at such a high level so quickly it does take a little bit longer because there's such a wide pool of men's men's players who are at the top even the top 100 are all contesting week in week out outside of those top four though and just went back to Casatina because I just thought it was so um, interesting to see players on clay and the differences between clay and then the, the grass court and she's a player that's always been particularly good on clay so you think that's maybe a bit of an advantage that she has that she can maybe try and yeah. have one over Shrontek or is she just way ahead? Yeah, well, I think, well, they actually both got, a, uh, sorry, Shrontek got asked that in an interview by, okay. uh, about, oh, this is Kazakina's favourite surface and Shrontek's response was, so it's, Clay is my favourite surface too. So it'll be uh, that matchup, like they're both playing on their preferred surface. But the games, you say, is, are different on the different surfaces. So as we see, see on a clay court, the ball is bouncing much higher. Players are, are um, playing from much deeper in the court. So they're much further back. So they're playing with a lot of spin and uh, pushing each other back whereas if you compare that to say a grass court the ball bounces very low on a grass court you see a different kind of a game where the players are coming into the net more because the balls are landing maybe a little bit shorter so they're able to come in and follow those in the ball's bouncing far less on that and then on a hard court that's a little bit similar to clay but there's no sliding necessarily on a hard court versus a clay court um, whereas like on a clay the surface allows for you to slide through it and play shots whereas on a hard court th- this isn't the same you're stuck to the ground more so it does play a high bounce but not as compared to clay um, but you will see some players sliding on a hard court that's like a jock which likes that incredible athleticism he has to be able to do that but I wouldn't try that at home <laughs> Is it more difficult on the clay? The, the game mm-hmm. um, it's more physical definitely more physical the matches go on longer the rallies last a lot longer than they do on the likes of a, clay, a, a grass court um, more difficult I think it it's, can be more forgiving in ways because uh, more players get a chance on a clay court because the likes of players who are playing defensive game style it suits a, gla- a clay court because they can just run around all day defending defending whereas you don't get away with that on a faster surface so it allows for a little bit more players to come shine through in these like the likes of Kazakina. Did you get an opportunity to play on clay courts much? I'm guessing there's not too many of them in Ireland. <laughs> no, there's only maybe there's one when I was growing up there was only one clay court that was down in Tipperary. Now a few more courts have this artificial clay because we realise it's a really beneficial surface to learn on because it's really good for your fitness. It, the rallies are lasting longer. You're learning to play a different game style. But when I was competing a lot of the surfaces I chose to play on were on hard court because it suited my game more so. Uh, I liked, I had a big serve and a big forehand so I liked to play aggressively so the hard court suited that. Whereas the clay I wasn't as comfortable, you know, rallying, out rallying, rallying all uh, like 20 shots. So I was much more comfortable trying to be more aggressive. So I played more on clay, on a hard court, sorry. Uh, the, the point about um, Djokovic sliding on the hard courts, does he have to have special runners for that? Like, 
they're different sur- they're different shoes for yeah. different surfaces no but the the, the shoes that run the risk of like wrecking your knee ankle yeah. Or, yeah they do but they have that just that they're incredibly supple and they're able their bodies are able for that you don't see every player doing that um, and even with Nadal with his foot problem so I, when I was watching yesterday I was thinking wow you know they're really planting their foot to try and probably keep themselves composed and reach the shot and I was thinking god and he has this chronic foot problem as well so you, you would think that the clay wouldn't be as good for that sort of thing but he seems to be better on, yeah, on the clay the, definitely injury wise I'm not sure that that's so good for him but yeah. the, the clay just suits his game so well because he plays with such heavy spin that he is so dominant with his game style on a clay court whereas yeah his body is not holding up I don't know if you heard him saying that a day that he's not sure how much longer he yeah. can go on with this chronic injury he has yeah it seems like this is a, a possibility that he like walks away at the end of this tournament that suddenly I felt a little bit like as opposed to oh this is going to be my last French I'll continue on like there was a, a bang of I might just ride out now you know if I, if he wins this like why would he show up when he's probably not going to win Wimbledon he's got a good chance in America but at the US I don't know is there yeah. any possibility is that did that there was a hint of that definitely in his post-match uh, interview after he played Djokovic there. He was saying that he's now travelling with his doctor because they're doing some sort of treatment, which he said he wouldn't say what it was until after the tournament. But he has been alluding to the fact that this could be his last French Open. But I think that that's playing into his performance almost in this French Open because he is so he, he knows this could be his last chance. So he, he is so determined to win that 22nd Grand Slam on his 14th Roland Garros. So I think that he's putting going through any kinds of pains barriers now just to, to see it over the line. Notwithstanding that, it was then a bit weird to see him at the Champions League final where it's like, you should literally have your feet up <laughs> watching this at home. Yeah, like, Real Madrid or his team, you know, I and know, in like, Paris. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure he, unless he had a police escort, the traffic is crap, you know, like, yeah. so that's, that's and if it had gone to extra time and penalties, that's like, four hours off your feet I don't know I just I wasn't terribly surprised to see his next match go to five sets the next day um, so just to go back to Naomi Osaka who you mentioned there right uh, like how long do you think she's going to play and what, what is her future well that's hard to tell I suppose she's taken the last year you know kind of handy in terms of competition why she's getting back into it now this year um, she cited as we know last year about mental health issues and she's come out and said that she was actually depressed this time last year um, I think she's gone over the last year gone through a, obviously a very tough time she shot to fame very, fame very quickly won back to back grand slams was at the top of the game and then all of a sudden as we know you know was struggling with that I think there is definitely a future for Osaka she's an incredible um, athlete really really strong tennis player has all the shots in her repertoire um, it's just about whether she can keep the on off court on court balance going because I think she's really now focusing on trying to live in more of the moment she's saying that she's trying to focus on living her life off the court and then enjoying tennis while she's on court yeah and, and obviously you wish her the very best at that it would be great to see her at Wimbledon and it would have been great for the comments around Wimbledon to be like oh look we really understand what's yeah. going on there's a war on you know and so therefore uh, our ranking points aren't probably the most important thing in the world at the moment yeah that's um, an interesting one isn't it the, and how they've banned the players you could see them playing some of the, the Russian players playing under the neutral flag here in the French Open that Wimbledon are not allowing so do you think it will have an impact on players showing up really or is, are they going to go like I mean, the money and the fame and the... Maybe just because we grew up at Wimbledon on TV all the time. Like, it's still really important. Irrespective yeah. of whether or not there's ranking points, right? 
yeah, well, Wimbledon is Wimbledon. Everybody wants to be in Wimbledon. Everyone wants to win Wimbledon. I do think that that's going to take the edge off it, though, not having the ranking points on offer. But I don't think anyone's going to drop out because of that. They're still going to have the prestige of Wimbledon and taking that title home at the end. Yeah, like it's not the Olympics, you know? Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, uh, can you name any of the Olympic tennis champions over the last 24 years? <laughs> Why did you do that to me? Have a guess. <laughs> Jenny. I, like, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, Sarah, I've won this one, but I only know that because I read it yesterday on Wikipedia. No, <laughs> yeah, but as in the prestige around yeah, the Olympics, exactly. yeah, people yeah. aren't as because there's no ranking points mm-hmm. and there never was. And mm. People are like, well, this doesn't really matter. But it's Wimbledon. It's Wimbledon. If it maybe was another, if it was the French Open or it might have been another Grand Slam, maybe you might have a bit of a drop off. But it is Wimbledon. But it is really disappointing that, that has happened because it does take that like the prestige out of it. But at the same time, I think everyone will still want that Wimbledon trophy at the end of it. Um, is there any prospect of Serena Williams playing this year? In Wimbledon and or in the US Open? She's been very quiet the last while, yeah, with with her game uh, and off-court. Nobody really knows what's going on as such. Um, but I, I'd love to see her coming back in Wimbledon. Grass would really suit her, you know, with her big game. I'm not sure she's 40 now. I'm not sure that her focus is on... Go on, you know, on regaining her yeah. form. It's funny that there hasn't been a formal announcement. Yeah. Kind of hanging Which always leaves it open. Like Whereas like Federer, if you look at Federer, he's he's been clinging on now for the last while with a, a knee injury. But I, I also might there be doubts around his comeback to the game. Kind of Williams and Federer seem to be in the same. I put them in the same box now. They're almost at the end, but not quite ready to retire just yet. Um, so you were talking about uh, grass and hardcourt. Does that mean that you're like if you were to power rank your um, your favorite? <laughs> Uh, majors, it goes Wimbledon first. Yes, definitely Wimbledon. Wimbledon is everyone's favourite. I think everyone knows who everyone knows Wimbledon. If you, if you ask anyone on the street, they know what Wimbledon is, but they probably don't know what the Australian Open is or yeah. the US Open. Yeah, so the Australian Open, not not really a, a major. That's we've had this debate before on the show. Like it's a, <laughs> got grandfathered in really. Uh, so the US Open then second. I go that to the French. I'd say US, yeah, then Australia and then the French, just because clay clay's my least favourite surface. So. I uh, find the viewership is better for women than the US. And um, so you're involved in, in tennis coaching. Is this the time of the year where all of a sudden, like your phone is ringing off the hook and everybody wants back in? <laughs> yeah, the, those two weeks of Wimbledon, you have everybody ringing you looking to play tennis. Everybody seems to get expire, uh, inspired at this time of year. I, I was looking at Schwantek's, um biography and her dad was a rower in the Olympics in Seoul in 88. Uh, Ireland is a country that produces many rowers and so if uh, the father of a great tennis player can be a rower why can't we have any more great tennis players Absolutely. what's yeah uh, yeah were, both of her parents actually were, were athletes John Tech. why we don't have at- tennis players in Ireland is yeah quite a, up for debate for many years now and um, there's a lack of I think um, a deep pool of players here so we seem to have a lot of competition with other sports the likes of GAA and soccer and those more voluntary sports whereas tennis is, is more of seen a, a luxury sport because it's obviously you pay your way for it and it's quite expensive sport but we lack as well the um, facilities here in Ireland like we only we don't have that many indoor facilities and obviously we're a nation of rain so that's a problem like during the year and the surface then is really important that we that you train on you see a lot of those players professional players now they are growing up on clay which I was mentioning is a really good surface fundamentally to learn the game we don't have that here that's but why there's so many Spaniards who are in the like, top 50 exactly yeah that's it that, that, that's their they there's only clay in, in Spain pretty yeah. much whereas yeah the facilities here the indoor facilities was a big issue and only in recent years now we've started putting these bubbles up around around the courts but that's pretty much only in Leinster so the likes of Munster have no indoor facilities whatsoever so how can they produce players you know when we're being called off 
few times a week with with the weather yeah. that we have here. And um, as I said, with the the pool, like when I was at the, the top of the game, when I was playing professionally here, the problem I was having was there wasn't anybody to train with who was putting me under pressure. So that's why the, a lot of the players who are kind of 16 here, if they if there's any kind of potential for them, they'll go abroad to Spanish academies, uh, tennis academies, or over to France for academies, because that's where you're going to have that big pool of players and lots of different styles to be playing against. Is that too late sometimes as well? Like, I mean, not not to write off any 16-year-old who's like, what? what? But yeah. like, um, so if you're in Spain at 12, you're playing against players who are world-class because, um, so I, I, is that, do, do you need to even go a little bit earlier? Yeah, I, I mean, yes. But at that age, 12, that's a huge sacrifice then for the family. And then do the family go with you? Does the family stay? Do you know, and 12 is very young to send a child away. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, At 16, you'd want to be making inroads in the, the junior international tour. Like you'd want to be near the top, you know, the top 250 at least at that stage if you're going to have a progression, a positive progression into the senior tour. Um, but we're not going to get that at 16. You said like you're so, de- you're developed, your game is developed a lot by 16. So yeah. it would be better and more beneficial to go at an earlier age but it's hard to talent spot so young here especially when they're playing so many sports you know and tennis is not the first choice for most people even if they are incredibly talented Do you see it's more male or female that are playing from a young age here there's a there's more men definitely more men playing and more men have had more success on the tour here um, but there are a lot of at, at grassroots level there's kind of a, a good mix like I see it in, in where I'm coaching there's a huge amount of girls but there's a drop off then we kind of get to about 12 and then they're not playing and, and they either go into you know the team sports because girls want to be amongst the, their other pals whereas the guys are a little bit more competitive and they stick with it a little bit longer here are you confident about the future of Irish tennis or is it something that we like need a bit of a rethink on? There definitely needs to be a little bit of a restructure and there is a restructuring going on at the moment um, with Tennis Ireland. But yeah, there needs to be a, a change definitely going on there, like bringing on more coaches and um, letting the, the provinces like the Leinster, Munster, Ulster do their thing as well with their players and not taking the players up to Dublin and having them only training in Dublin. They need to be with their back at home. They need to be amongst other players from their provinces and with the coaches, putting a little bit more trust in the coaches around the That would drive local standards, which in turn will lot drive the national standards. Yes, exactly. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So not taking them when they're only 10. All right. Always really interesting stuff. Jenny, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Jenny Claffey there talking to us about the French Open. Let's uh, hear from Caitlin Thompson talking with Joe last night about how long more she thinks Rafa will play. Uh, Back with the papers after this. Rafa has indicated this might be his last Roland Garros. I think he really is being held together with duct tape. So it wouldn't surprise me if in a very, very Rafael Nadal-esque way, he's looking at this as perhaps his last great stand. And I think that we've already seen throughout his whole career, this man contends every single point as if it's his last. It's his superpower. It's in addition to all the skill and fitness and tactics he brings to the to the game of tennis. It's just at the end of the day, he, he does absolutely not want to lose or give up on a single ball. Mm. And I think that's something you can't teach. And I think especially when you've got, you got a guy who's looking down the barrel of probably the last great chance he has um, at his favorite tournament, the, the tournament is, that has made his career, it's maybe foolish to think that he's not the favorite in every single point that he plays. That said, myself included, I think most of us thought there was not a chance. I thought, oh, well, he's down. If he loses this fourth set, it's over. And then all of a sudden, uh, the match was back in Rafa's control. And I was basically out of my seat screaming. My, mm-hmm. my son was here with me, and he was 
sort of stupefied as to how any one person could get that into a tennis match. And I said, this is your inheritance, you know, deal with it. We're going to be doing this together for a really a long time yet. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not, yes. no. All right, we can um, bring you some of the newspaper headlines. Do I have a tab of the morning to you straight off the bat? I don't have the sun. I do, yeah, there you go. Oh, uh, South Africans in the Champions Cup will make it harder to win the tournament. Um, that was a conversation that was happening on uh, Wednesday Night Rugby last night. Uh, John Duggan's virtual insanity is up and ready to go for the memorial. And also uh, the lunchtime wrap yesterday, uh, Dennis Leamy was confirmed as the new Munster defence coach. His replacement's going to be Sean O'Brien, which I hadn't heard anything about in the build-up to it. So that was um, the return of another Leinster legend to the backroom team, replacing, you know, indirectly uh, the Leinster legend that was Contepomi. So they're keeping that um, line of coaches alive from uh, players who played at the highest level for the team. Obviously, I know he's not directly replacing Contepomi again before the angry... uh, Angry man on uh, YouTube gets in touch. Come on, you boil in green. What are the chances of a break? Apparently it's going to be hot in the game against Armenia at the weekend. Uh, Ireland will have to sweat it out to discover if they get water breaks on Saturday. Stephen Kenny and his players landed in sweltering Yerevan yesterday afternoon. Temperatures are forecast to reach as high as 36 degrees on match day. This is not good for us. We do not perform well in the sun. We don't. We like the sun, we think. And then we get there and we blister and we sunburn. <laughs> And we get heat rash and we're like, Jay, it's too hot, isn't it? Yeah, well, 36 degrees, that is too hot. And definitely to be playing a game, <laughs> for sure. Oh, it'll be tough, but uh, no, I'm definitely hopeful against Armenia. You would be, wouldn't you? I mean, look, uh, we, we've had trouble with them before. In, in 2012, there's a piece in the Irish Times today that um, we were their Thierry Henry moment in 2012, which mm-hmm. I'm totally unaware of. Yeah, uh, you know, very very <laughs> colonial of us to be like, oh, really? You remember uh, ours? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and then the other one is brothers in arms. This is uh, Yarmolenko celebrating last night after Scotland uh, were dispatched at Hampden Park by Ukraine, and they will now play Wales uh, in Cardiff on Sunday for a place in Qatar. It's tough that they obviously had two away games to get there, but. You know, there's certainly an emotional intensity that nobody else is going to have at the moment. Yeah, and that's what it seemed like. And I think for Scotland, they just they didn't really show up. When on the other hand, Ukraine really have that emotional, as you said, intensity. And you could feel it in the post-match interviews afterwards. You know that they they want to perform in every game they have the chance to play in now is what they were saying. Um, and you could really see that. And yeah, it was a good performance. Yeah, so we've got to play them twice in this um, in this international break, like them being very preoccupied by World Cup qualifiers is probably good for us in a way at the same time them also being on a massive roll and killing everybody uh, metaphorically uh, in football not great for us yeah when I seen them on such a high I said oh wow this is going to be tough for us um, but as well they, we've Scotland as well so you know look uh, oh, I think that they are probably beatable you would think on paper they're, they're quite strong they're really strong Scotland but uh, yeah you would like to think that we'd I think be able to stick with them. The um, really interesting piece in the Examiner here by Ian Mallon. He writes about the business of sport every week. It's a column on Thursdays. Uh, our RTE's 25 million football rights deal offering value. So RTE spent 25 million, uh, according to this piece, uh, on the Champions League. The Tuesday games over three years, 10 million. The finals for the Euro 2024, 6.5 million. The World Cup uh, for 2022 is 5 million. 
the Euro 2024 qualifiers is 2 million and the Nations League is 1.8 million um, and it says uh, Paul Farrell, Managing Director of Virgin Media, said RTE has now bought so much sport with public money that it does not have enough channels or platforms to show it all. It's interesting, isn't it? That they're spending money, according to Paul Farrell, who's the Managing Director of Virgin Media, that they're spending money on sports rights and then not even able to broadcast everything that they have the rights to show. Which is really interesting. You have RTE's head of sports, says Paul Farrell, saying he does not want to create a monopoly with sport, but basically demonstrating that he has so much of it, he doesn't know what to do with it. RTE faced some criticism in March when it decided not to broadcast a Rovers versus Bohemians game live, opting instead for Wales versus France in Six Nations Rugby. And then again back to Paul Farrell. The clear reality is that RTE has built a monopoly using tens of millions of euro in public money. That's your money. In public money. And you have to question, is this the best use of public funding? And where does it stop? Because, of course, the alternative is that Virgin could pay for it, which would cost us nothing as taxpayers, and put it on. So we could get it for free as a country from Virgin or we can pay for it as taxpayers and it's no, no difference except we're spending our money to get this thing which somebody else could give us for free. Does that sound like a good deal? Sounds like a good deal. That's that. So look, I, I, I would urge you to read this. It's, um, it's unusual because we, we don't really get broadcasters talking about other broadcasters too much. Uh, what I have noticed is that a recent Oireachtas meeting, RTE is never held to account to explain how money is spent, what it's investing in and where the money is going. They rock up and tell whatever committee, we never separate that out publicly or what we use our money for and that has suited them for years. Basically, it comes down to accountability and transparency. Bear in mind, RTE have lost millions and 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 millions over the last decades of our money. And um, they're investing it in sports rights and Virgin are saying, well, we'd show the same games and it wouldn't cost the taxpayer anything. Just think it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment for us all to get into, and um, you can read that in the Examiner today. Uh, back of the Times, the London Times, small screen exit for Pogba. The Man United account was getting a lot of blowback from Manchester United fans for a tribute to Paul Pogba. Here's how we blew 200 million of your money as well. <laughs> it's all about blowing money today. Mm-hmm. Uh, good riddance is the back page of the mirror. We'll talk with this about Andy Mitten, with Andy Mitten about this a little bit later on. Um, Scotland won, rest of the world three. That's the, the notion that everybody's behind Ukraine in their bid for qualification, which you know, like only Gareth Bale can stop them now. Uh, Moresmo in the firing line of a scheduling round is the back page of the Telegraph. Final insult. United flop Pogba leaves on a free with 3.8 million loyalty bonus. Six-year spell cost club 219 million sterling. Ooh. Money well spent. Uh, right, tonight's the night. The football pod is live with Paddy Andrews, James O'Donoghue and special guests. We're at the Royal Theatre in Castle Bar tonight. It'll be a celebration of Mayo football. It'll be a look at the championship race and much more. And Paddy and James will definitely pose for photographs. Uh, it's the football pod live in Castle Bar tonight. Tickets are on sale uh, at otbsports.com forward slash events. Uh, Carl, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, folks. How are what, we? what is going on today? Well, I'm not going to Castle Bar, unfortunately, tonight. I'd it's love to be, be going. Night. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, that, that'll be brilliant, yeah. I actually watched back some of the highlights when I saw the poster that Keith Higgins was coming of um, Mayo and Kerry down in, in Limerick all those years ago now. 2014, wasn't it? I know that, um, I know that the start of the show is going to be particularly interesting for... Uh, the two regular hosts in terms of some of their highlights I want to say right of um, the particularly their achievements against Mayo I know that they both ultimately end up having a good record and he who laughs last laughs longest but um, there were some times when things didn't go to plan for 
Patty and James. Do they know that's happening? I'm they do sure. now? I'm not sure. <laughs> they they're not watching this morning. They're en route to Castle Bar thinking, Jesus, I better, better have my game face on. Yeah. This uh, is the most tense they're ever going to be facing Mayo because, uh, let's face it, they always knew they were going to win, right? Oh, God. Oh, it was, it was always tight now. That, um, that, was a, that game in Limerick was sensational. the best game I can remember. Uh, because Ever it wasn't watching. in Croke Park and it was full it wasn't even there you full go, yeah. there were spare tickets that day for everybody's like oh this is a disaster people were there spare go tickets yeah. where it wasn't full right. yeah. okay. um, Carl do you hate Mayo as a Sligo man is this like a like a proper um, big yeah I come from bullying? the Mayo border so probably yeah if there was one team Sligo could beat every year like a pretty Mayo oh, so, I don't know anyone that hates Mayo when they lose in all Ireland finals are you like ha 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 are you the Man United fans that nah, last weekend nah, no no um no, I wouldn't begrudge them one. Just one. Well, <laughs> what if they unleashed a beast? Yeah, I don't know. No, I don't think so, no. I don't think we're, we're that level. But like if, if, if you could offer me a guarantee that Sligo could beat one team every year, it would definitely be Mayo, yeah. Um, and it's been a while since uh, Sligo have beaten Mayo. I think 2010 in the championship. And that was, Horan came in in 11. And since then, it's been one-way traffic, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, Casabar, Balanaz, close to where I'm from, and then Charlestown, and those sort of areas are just football crazy. And uh, they've always had good representation on the Mayo squad, so it's always a keen rivalry along the border, all right. But um, should be a great night in Casabar, yeah? Yeah, it'll be brilliant. What, if, what is going on in the world of sport today? Well, Scotland's World Cup hopes are over. That's after losing 3 1 to Ukraine in their playoff semi final at Hampden Park last night. Ukraine were playing, of course, for the first time since Russia's invasion of the country, and they'll face Wales on Sunday for a place in Qatar. This evening on the international front, Northern Ireland begin their Nations League campaign. They play Greece at Windsor Park from 7.45. Wales last night suffered a 2 1 defeat away to Poland. That was in their opening group game, and of course, the Republic of Ireland begin their campaign against Armenia on Saturday. In tennis, world number one Iga Svantec continues her bid for a second French Open title later. The 2020 champion faces 20th seed Daria Kasakina in the first of the women's semi-finals. Then unseeded Italian Martina Trevisan meets America's Coco Goff on the other side of the draw. In golf, a big day ahead for Leona Maguire and Stephanie Meadow there in the field for the second major of the year, the US Women's Open in North Carolina. Both players tee off this evening. The Memorial Tournament hosted by Jack Nicholas gets underway in Ohio today on the PGA Tour. Seamus Power is the first Irish player out in course at lunchtime Irish time and then Shane Larry and Rory McIlroy both have evening Did tea you times. See the story about Jack Nicholas and his own company uh, being in dispute about uh, his involvement with Saudi. Mm. There was um it said the, the there was a, a row between him and the company that he has built up over the years where, you know, he obviously has employees. Um but he was very interested in talking to Saudi Arabia and going so uh, how much money is there in this for me and um, the company were like no 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 we ain't gonna do this uh, so um, now it's all like oh I never never interested in the first place but um, that story yeah I've, <laughs> I've seen the stuff that he's come out with saying that he refused it point blank when he was approached the 100 million and basically he's take on he the job zero but, interest in it but there was yeah. certainly um there was maybe prior to that there was certainly a bit of um, debate about that in mm. a piece in the papers recently where um, his the president or um, or one of the executives were like we had to have a strong conversation here yeah, come on stop talking to these guys just stop it mm. and I mean the next story I was going to say is that the PGA Tour uh, reiterating its stance that it's going to discipline members that are playing in that event next week in London and it just Beggar's belief, beggar's mm. belief that these players are doing this. Um, I mean, 
how rich do you need to be? You know, how rich do you need to be? I mean, there was talk that Justin Johnson is 100 million as well to to break away and basically tarnish his legacy. Really, he's a major champion, one of America's main players in the Ryder Cup, and you know, willing to jump ship at a relatively young age when he still has a lot of gas left in the tank in terms of competing at the top end. Uh, and, and departing for this tour. Uh, interesting, Rory McIlroy made some comments yesterday as well, and he's kind of rolled back on his opposition to it and trying to come round to the, I suppose, the viewpoint of some of the players that are jumping ship because maybe they're not in the mix for the bigger tournaments on the PGA Tour, and he's trying to look at it from their viewpoint, but he says that he hopes the punishments aren't too severe. But the mood music from the PGA Tour is that they will be whether they bar these guys altogether or they not. They need to be something fast, sure. though, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they need to be decisive, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, this has happened. Oh, we never saw Sitting anything. back, just watching. You know, it actually, there has to be action on it, you know. And it has to be decisive action, too, that, mm-hmm. you know, because there are going to be a floor of players um, if this happens. You've got events with no cuts, 54 holes, uh, enormous prize money. I mean, I think it's $4 million for the winner in this event next week. And the field, as Rory McIlroy said, isn't great. Whereas you have the good field at the Memorial this week on the PGA Tour and then the Canadian Open next week. Um, RBC have dropped uh, Johnson and Graham McDowell at Royal Bank of Canada were sponsoring those two and they're playing in this event next week while RBC sponsors the Canadian Open on the PGA Tour Dustin Johnson is apparently like on the billboards mm. uh, for the uh, yeah. RBC sponsored event yeah and it's um, like uh, no, I'm sorry I can't make it I'm washing my hair it's, it's just um, with money it's depressing really very depressing that the players are doing this and uh I'm not surprised Justin Johnson's doing it. I am not surprised at all. When you say tarnishes legacy, I'm like, I'm not sure it does. I don't know what his legacy was. Like, there's five or six golfers who I expect to do this. He was one of them. There's a few more. We'll wait and see if um, I'll I'll name them after the show. (laughs) But uh, I mean, you you can guess if you were to like do a who's who. Who's going to say yes to the money? Um, Yeah, you're right there. You would have a fairly good idea. Yeah. but in terms of legacy, if you look at the European players that are in the field for next week, uh, Sergio Garcia, Graham McDowell, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter are players that are synonymous with Europe in the Ryder Cup. And there has been soundings that these players won't be allowed to be anywhere near the Ryder Cup in future years if they go and do this. So you just have to think back and wonder, well, were they that committed to Europe in the Ryder Cup? And do they care that no. much about it? No, it, it, it like it, it torpedoes a lot of the Ryder Cup's prestige when these players are walking away from it because for money um, I, I do have to say I, I think that the end game here is that the PGA Tour and the LIV end up in partnership that's what happens at the very end of this we might not get there straight away but and it might take 10 years but more than likely everything will be made whole by money and there will be uh, sanctioned PGA Tour events in Saudi Arabia as Saudi Arabia pays to buy a portion like this like Formula One got sold and uh, all of rugby has got sold the All Blacks have sold a portion of the All Blacks to um, uh, you know to money and that's what's going to happen here the the money is so much that Saudi Arabia have that ultimately they're just going to buy something from America and America's going to go it's too much money it's too, uh, so yeah. sad they're going to do what Dustin Johnson did and go for the good of the game and for my family it's so depressing. Yeah. And and where does that leave the game then if that does happen? And it is a possibility. I mean, that basically everything is tarnished then if it's connected to this money. But all of football is tarnished, money. I would say. And still we watch it. Yeah, fair point. Like, people love the sport, 
um, you know, again, to go back to the kids commentating in their back garden, uh, like the kids playing golf aren't like, yes, I've won Saudi Arabian money or I've won American money. It's like they, it's the glamour and the glory of getting the ball in the hole. It's the sport. Yeah, the, the playing. That's yeah. another interesting point that the lads were making on the news round last night is that there's no television deal at the moment for this new tour. Uh, there's no sponsorship. They don't need it because they just have so much money. Which is it's just crazy staggering. Yeah, it's staggering that when you think. That's so important before. When you think, yeah, exactly. When other sporting events are happening, the TV deals are central, like the Premier yeah. League and yeah. stuff like that. Um, All so right. I mean, anything else? Crazy. Um, that's just about it. There's Gaelic Games as well last night. Uh, Brian Hayes kicked 2 3 for Cork as they won the Munster Minor football title last night. They beat Kerry by 3 11 to 9 points less Hammered than three them, weeks. Yeah. And they lost to them by 14 points uh, less than three weeks ago. And wow. there's racing at uh, Leopardstown this evening, the first off there at 5 past 5. Red storm rising. We keep saying it. It's just like keeps making a fool of us because it's taken so long. But anyway, Carl, good stuff. Thanks Thank a million. You. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We'd love to hear from you. you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Ron Nogar is going to be out with us in about 20 minutes' time. If you have any questions for Rog or any reflections on his incredible achievements so far this year, and it's not finished for them just yet, then we'd love to hear from you too. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. On tonight's Off the Ball, we're going to give you the chance to win a 100 euro Irish independent shop voucher, but more importantly, you're going to be in the draw for a Veloci e-bike. It's the best-selling electric bike in Belgium, and it's now available in Ireland to enter. Text in to 53106 to tell us who the mystery voice is when it's played on tonight's show. Uh, all I remember is Mayo's crying about why it was not in Croke Park. Then James O'Donoghue and Keith Higgins' best duel ever, says Michael White, talking about the game between... Uh, well, between James and Keith, and that might feature on tonight's show. <laughs> but uh, you're going to have to be there in person to fully appreciate it. I mentioned for the PFA Players Player of the Year, Son not getting nominated, an absolute shamble, scores 23 goals from open play this season and overlook for Mane, Kane, uh, Virgil and Ronaldo. I can accept Kevin De Bruyne and Salah. I can't accept De Bruyne and Salah. It is, it is kind of, um, it is kind of ridiculous in fairness. Uh, Ronaldo, would you put him in there? No. I no. Mean, if, I know we'll probably talk about it now, but I was quite shocked there. If Son's taking penalties, like, it's game over, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, and also with the the level of um, creativity and chances created that he has. Let's get to Manchester United. Andy Mitten is with us. Andy, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm okay, thank you. Um, the end of an era as the um, players' videos, tributes are released. And look, I you know, clubs have to do this to... Um, Maybe they don't have to do it, but they do do it. So, uh, how how is the Manchester United fan base reflecting on the end of Jesse Lingard at United and the end of Paul Pogba at United in particular? Most of them are glad that those two players are leaving the club. Uh, we did a poll on United We Stand a few weeks ago about Paul Pogba, and the question was a simple one. Would you like him to stay or go? And 95% said go. With Jesse Lingard, I think you get you get different numbers, but the last season didn't work for him, uh, for the club. He had a very good loan spell at West Ham. In hindsight, it's easy to say that he should have been sold a year ago because he's clearly a player who can stand out for a team in the top half of the Premier League. Manchester United have lost him for nothing and Paul Pogba lost him for nothing for the second time in his career. So doesn't reflect well on Manchester United's transfer business at all. And I think there's a feeling that the, the messages yesterday, 
they didn't strike a chord with me in the slightest. I thought the tone was completely wrong. I think that calling him once a red, always a red, as the club's official website did. Well, he's chosen to leave the club twice. And I know that they can't come out and say, um, this has been an almighty waste of money. And Paul Pogba is completely underwhelmed since his world transfer record. Nor can they say there are mitigating circumstances because we keep sacking managers. But that's about the, the measure of it. Huge disappointment. It's not all on him, but some part of it is is on him. Yeah. And with Jesse, you know, just I'm I'm talking in similar about both of them. Manchester United have not won a trophy for five years. I mean, I, I would say that a large part of it is on him. Um, but equally, you know, the the problem is that the company and the football are so different. The company is well run. They generate massive amounts of money that allows them to buy these players. But the wrong people have been making the decisions about which players to sign. And then it seems like really the wrong people have been making the decisions about what style to play and how to accommodate them over the last number of years. Talking to Manchester United fans over the last week, they seem at least hopeful about the fact that the right man is now in charge of the football and and, uh, on the pitch Um, but everybody who I talked to every single one of them was like they just have to get the recruitment right and there have been no signs of their ability to do that Yeah I think both of those are are fair comments from Paul Pogba's perspective the dream he he was sold coming back to Manchester United didn't materialise and it is more on him than anybody else but it's not just on him and the recruitment, the players who were brought in around him. Every one of them welcomed in, by the way, by fans like me, uh, cheering in the likes of Bastian Feinsteiger, who came a year before Paul Pogba, Angel Di Maria, Radamel Falcao, Alexis Sanchez. I could probably pick up 15 to 20 names. The recruitment has been atrocious and United need to do something differently. And under a new manager... I think he'd be cut quite a lot of slack to do things differently. He will have the final say. All the managers have had the final say as well. Uh, but it, it's, he's got a huge job. He's got a very difficult job. I think what you're seeing now is every departure being waved out the door. Every arrival will be waved in the door. Football fans are predisposed to hope for a brighter future, to invest in a brighter future. You see these gladiatorial idealised images of Eric Ten Hag mastering over everything he surveys. I'd love that to be the truth, but I just I can just see more difficult times ahead. I think United have got to improve. I'm pretty optimistic that United will improve. It can't be as bad as it was this season, last season. And new players will come in and more players will leave this month. More staff will leave before the end of this month. So there's a lot of changes going on there and there needs to be because it is a football club which has failed where it matters most on the pitch. It's all right bringing the money in off the pitch and being commercially astute and United have spent a lot of money but so much of it has been wasted. United's wage bill is significantly higher than Liverpool's. You've got players like Anthony Martial earning more money than Mohamed Salah and you can always pick at one problem area of any football club. Real Madrid are a European champions and they had a massive issue with Gareth Bale's wages the problem at United is it's five six seven different players 
And it's just a, a massive job. Like when I'm thinking about it, like he's coming in to a club that needs a lot of restructuring, needs to be rebuilt really. You have these players that are there that aren't really on form, superstar players not really on form. Then you're bringing these new players in. Then as you were saying as well, there's players coming or there's staff coming and going. How does he manage all that in the dressing room? It's got, it's got a difficult job. Um, he's He had a difficult job when he went to Ajax. And a lot of people were doubtful of him when he went there. He's got a very clear philosophy of what he wants. I've spoken to a couple of the United players. They want that. They want to hear that from the new manager. Ralph Rangnick didn't work as a manager at all. And nobody wanted that to be the case. The players wanted it to work. The manager wanted it to work, but it, it just didn't work. So you'll get some United fans saying, get rid of every player, play the kids. It's not going to be as drastic as that. You'll see a lot of players leave this summer partly because they're out of contract, which helps the club because they earn so much money. It's difficult to get rid of them while they're still under contract. And you'll see players come in still under a slight cloud of the finances being affected by, by COVID. If United can get any money from sales, that will help the club's position. But even there, you had Anthony Martial go to Seville. If he'd done well in La Liga, he would have a pretty significant resale value. There'd be demand for him, but he didn't. He scored one goal. He was a complete flop there. So that's another player who we're looking at through a negative light because so much around him is negative. Ten Hag's got a tough job. He'll have good coaches around him. Um, I, I think that most United fans are really welcoming of his appointment, as they were with Jose Mourinho as they were when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer signed the contract after that first flush of, of a good run, as they were with Louis van Gaal as well. So excuse me for being a little bit circumspect, especially when rivals are so good. Liverpool, Manchester City, they're really good at the moment. But I, I do believe Manchester United will, will improve. Uh, Martial's an interesting case in point because obviously he's back, or will be back at the club unless they find another willing partner to take on a portion of his wages is there any prospect that Ten Hag can turn him into a player is there any prospect that Ten Hag can turn Donny van de Beek into a player and actually what we'll see is that uh, players who were previously essentially worthless to the club in terms of output can get something from them as a transitional period until he actually gets the players he wants in yeah absolutely there's players there who whose stock is so low, but they've not just become failures. They've just had a bad season in some cases. And with a better coach and with more confidence, you can have an upward spiral in the same way that United have suffered from a downward spiral. I'm sure that Ten Hag will see something in some of those players where he coaches them in a slightly different way. He might use them in a different way in terms of their position. You've got other players like Rafael Varane, Jaden Sancho, top, top players who had pretty mediocre first seasons. They, they deserve a little bit of time to settle in, I think. But now it's the second season. Now they're expected to shine. And I think they will do. Marcus Rashford, he's not just become a terrible player, even though he's not played well for a long time. And there's a talent there. It's just got to be found again. And that's the manager's job to do that. And I think he's good at working with young players. He proved that at, at Ajax. And he's saying the right things, but then Ralph Rangnick said the right things when he first came in. I think there'll be a patience to support him. They know that 
United are not going to be um, top of the league or unlikely to be top of the league and winning the title next season. Fans just need to see more evidence of, of improvement, of signings who come in and don't get worse because that, that keeps on happening. You get world-class players coming to Manchester United and looking significantly worse within a year or two. That, that's really worrying that, that that continues to happen. It seems like they need to find a system and a, and a style that that suits them all, and that's what I'm a little bit afraid of. Like the as you spoke about, Andy, the type of the the style that he Den Hag had at Ajax, like it's sort of that high intensity. So is that what he's going to bring to Man United? And do the players that are currently there, the likes of Ronaldo, do they fit that style? If that is what he brings in, I don't think Ronaldo does. I also think that at Ajax you have. Uh, players who've been in a system since they're children, so they've grown up playing that way, similar to Barcelona and how their players have worked. So you can't just turn that round or turn it on in a pre-season. He'll have to make tweaks, and I'm told that he'll have players um, doing repetitions in training again and again and again until he drives them mad, until he gets what he wants uh, from them. And Systems, philosophies, we, we heard this with Louis van Gaal. He had a very clear philosophy in his mind. He felt ultimately that he didn't have the players to, to carry it through, despite bringing a lot of players through. So it's not going to be easy. And United need a bit of luck as well. Their confidence needs picking up off the floor. The end of this season was so bad. Six consecutive away defeats. This is Manchester United. Six consecutive away defeats. No, got two goals scored, 17 goals conceded. 4-0 at Brighton. Hammered home and away by Liverpool. So it can't be any worse. The bar is so low at the moment that it has to be raised. And it will be raised, I'm sure of that. But I don't think um, it, United are going to suddenly turn into title contenders. But you know what football fans are like? You know what I'm like? Six games in, everything's looking good. People be like, well, hey, this is great. This new man's great. This is the man. You want to believe you, you invest um, hope into a brighter future. And there are good players there. There are really, really good players there who haven't looked like good players. Harry Maguire is a captain. He's a good defender. He's openly ridiculed on social media. Up until May 2020, he was considered by most fans as being a very good defender for Manchester United. Not all fans. Some fans are never, ever happy. Some fans moan after winning the, the treble. But he was a good defender up until just over a year ago. And look, that's the, the opportunity for Ten Hag is to get something out of those players, like in, in, improve their fitness straight away, which means they run more. And so therefore the pressing game actually makes some sense. And, you know, uh, get Bruno's confidence back and all of a sudden you've got a world-class player in your team again so there, there, there are quick wins that he can do that I, I guess when you're making the case as a Manchester United fan for hope that that's mm-hmm. the stuff that you think he can influence the other thing that needs to influence is uh, comings and goings and we, we see a lot of the players going at the moment who is coming in what 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 is realistic um, because he's been linked with everybody all his former players all his current players if you were to if you were to place an imaginary bet, um, what do you think is likely in terms of the number of players coming in and the quality of players coming in? I would say three, four, dependent on who leaves the club, dependent on 
the money United raise on selling players. There are a dozen players on United's radar at the moment. You may have read about them. It's not unusual for Manchester United to be linked with speculative transfer targets. And the interest in people like Frankie de Jong is, is, is genuine. But just because United want a player doesn't mean that that player is going to sign for Manchester United, is going to sign not to play Champions League football, is going to sign to play at a club which has consistently underachieved. That said, it's still a very attractive club to a lot of players. So I know of some really, really big names who've been offered to Manchester United by their agents. And I think in the past, the club might have been blinded by the names and the status, but now it's on the manager. He's got his clear ideas. He's the one who should make all of these decisions. Shouldn't be listening to fans saying, get him, get him. He's the one who will thrive or lose his job if the players do not perform for him. There's a budget there. There's a decent budget to buy players. The market is not as high as it was before um, COVID. United can pay top dollar. There's players leaving, like Edinson Cavani, like Pogba, like Lingard, who, who are on astronomical amounts. And Cavani's another one. Great player, great career, but such a disappointment last season. Huge, huge disappointment that it was unavailable for so many matches. And if you if you carry in one player, like Madrid carried Gareth Bale, you get away with it. But if that's happening to three, four, five players, your ship starts to sink. And that's what happened with Manchester United. So many injuries. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer had pretty good luck with injuries, actually. But in the last year, it's been much more of a, of a worry. So players will come in. There's this clamour to sign players now, 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 now. And I get that because the idea of business being done early is a good one. And I think United fans are still haunted by the summer of 2013 where Marouane Fellaini ended up coming in two minutes before midnight when Tony Cruz had agreed to join uh, Manchester United under David Moyes for the following year, uh, when other players had agreed to come as well and, and just United made a complete mess of it. So fans are pretty circumspect, but I know that um, players going back to February and March were saying to the club, yeah, we're interested in joining, but tell us who the manager's going to be. So the managers came in, the managers sorted. So that's good. United are not scratching around for a manager now. And that's happened in the past. You know, in 1981, three different managers rejected Manchester United before Ron Atkinson took the job. So they've got Ten Hagen. That was the manager who United wanted. He's really set about his business. Um, he's doing lots behind the scenes. Been lots of meetings in Manchester, in London, in Amsterdam as well. Lots of names mentioned. Some of them have been nowhere near what you've read in the media which may surprise people. Some of them are all over the media. Some of them are being pushed by their agents who want their players to be linked with Manchester United because there's very little downside to that. Yeah. And that's what's happening. Yeah, for sure. Andy, good stuff. Thanks a million. Thank you. It's Andy Mitten there giving us a sense of what the off-season is going to be like for Manchester United. It's nine minutes past nine. OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's coming up on OTB Sports Radio today. If you listen to nothing else this week, tune in at one o'clock today. OTB Gold, Dr. Harry Edwards talking about the OJ Simpson documentary. It's sensational stuff. 
Leaders' questions with Stuart Lancaster at three. Our retro panel is League of Ireland players in England at four. And OTV Gold is uh, Declan Murphy, uh, the story of his recovery from a horrific brain injury while racing. And then the show is live tonight from seven o'clock. Now, Team OTB, including Ashling and I, are taking on Triathai this weekend, Sunday morning. It's all in partnership with Whoop, the personalised digital fitness and health coach that helps you unlock your inner potential. See whoop.com for more. During the ad break, you'll see a sneak peek of our preparation session with Irish Olympic triathlete Carolyn Hayes and get an idea of just how well prepared Team OTB truly is. Stay tuned. Ronan O'Gara is next. OTB AM. All right, we've been waiting all week for this. Ronan O'Gara, good morning to you. How are you? Jarrah, how's it going? Hi, Ashley. How are you? How have the celebrations been? They were good. They were tough. Yeah, I'm thankful for. Um, <laughs> Tougher than the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's it's a big part where you get involved with it too. I think to, from the the dressing room uh, afterwards to seeing. I think as you get a bit older too, you see the joy in locals. Uh, that has hit me big time this week. Just uh, I suppose the pleasure you've given to the people of La Rochelle and I think when you're a player you miss all that really you're kind of consumed by the by the dressing room and by your teammates but um, when you're in the coaching group and you're the coach you don't have many mates so you're down the back of the bus and you're on a bit and you can see a lot of things and you have a lot of spare time and um, you could see um, uh, what it meant to the to the people of La Rochelle so that was cool it was really cool just explain a bit of that to us, will you? Because that, that's interesting. You're, you're quite reflective about that as opposed to, yeah, it was all amazing. It was like, actually, I got to see. And and I maybe, maybe everybody isn't fully aware that like the people of La Rochelle haven't always had a brilliant rugby team bestriding Europe like a colossus or, or competing for the Bouclier. It's kind of been a relatively new thing that they've been this successful. So you're, you're kind of given an identity to the rugby fans of the area. Exactly, Jordan. That's powerful. I think it's it was, we were blown away. It was like I think uh, many years ago. Um, I remember when the Tour de France was uh, uh, very very popular in Ireland, and and when it got to the mountain stage, it's just the um, the images of the of the guys on the bikes literally being helped up the up the mountain. It was literally like that with the bus. The bus was kind of being helped through the port by by the locals. It was very very powerful scenes where like. You know, I mean, strip it back a little bit. There's a bus here. The bus is the immovable object. You know what I mean? The people shouldn't be in its way. Yet they wanted to touch the bus. They wanted to throw scarves, jerseys, uh, whatever they could to to the to the players. Um, and I think, yeah, as you say, um, you know, eight years ago the team was pro de So like the the Champions Cup. Um, has blown them away, you know, and like I suppose on on the roof of Europe or something, they were talking about it over over here, and I mean to be put in the same category as as you know Leinster or um, teams like that. It for La Rochelle, it's it's very very hard for them to understand that. And I guess that's very powerful for you as well. It's been interesting for just watching the coverage, like the Telegraph immediately. O'Gara and England and everybody's talking about the next job but for me the bit here is where you said this is the start of something and like I you know I'm not asking you to tell us exactly what your plans are but there's something very intoxicating and powerful about being at the beginning of a journey where it's all yours now in terms of this group you have control yeah. over what happens next yeah exactly and 
with that, the next three weeks are incredibly important too because I'd like to think we start a new journey this weekend. You know, we have, we have a tricky fixture in Lyon, but you're still uh, potentially four games away from being champions of France. That's the bouclier. That's where the history is. That's where the love is. That's, you know what I mean? I think the, the fantasy competition nearly was the the European Cup because the people thought that can never happen. But one day they, they dreamt of... Um, you mean winning the bouquet, but uh, I suppose the fact that, and the manner, I think, in church, there was a bit of a fairy tale ending, to be fair. And, you know, I mean, that's it's very rarely that that happens in sport. You contrast what happened 12 months ago in Twickenham when we probably felt we had a legitimate penalty not given, and, and the the emotions that come with that for the following week, as opposed to what happened on Saturday when. You know, the reality is there's nothing between the two teams, literally nothing. And that's why I think you know, immediately you'd have a feeling for uh, Leon Stewart and Felipe and Dennis Leamy and Robin because I know exactly how they're feeling. And there's, as usual, there's an overreaction to probably what went wrong for them and what went right for us. But I, I, I know that it's could so easily been them and we could have been zero out of three as well as you're in terms of big finals and then the fact is that mentally we we don't have it you know so the margins are absolutely tiny uh, and the Leinster management were class they came for a beer in the change room afterwards they were very very um, I suppose uh, it was very big of them to do that Not an easy thing to, to do to hang out and watch your players celebrate but I guess mm-hmm. it, it's the type of thing that maybe they'll feed off uh, over the next while um, can you talk to us about yeah it's it's the mark of them of men too you know I think that is extremely hard but they did it you know and the easy thing was to stay in their own training room but no they they did what what they felt was right and I think it was very appreciated by, by the whole of our environment you talked about the bus being the immovable object your defence was a bit of an immovable object over the course of the game as well um, you know we, we did a piece with um uh, the some of the analysts in the build-up to the game and then after the game as well and it was clear that the stats show your ability to challenge Leinster's breakdown is something that had this ripple effect on their ability to be creative over the course of the 87, 88, whatever, how long, however long the match lasted. So how far out in advance did you think, OK, if we're going to win this game, it's going to be by starting with that and then everything else has to go your way as well but when did the game plan begin to emerge in your mind in the build up to the match um, yeah it's an interesting question I, I find I my I suppose massive source of comfort well, I, don't, I don't think there's a coach in the world with uh the certain players at its disposable in terms of poaching balls. So I'm, I'm including test teams in this. You know, if you go through the team in terms of Aldred can obviously poach the ball. Liebenberg is very good at poaching the ball. Uh, Will Skelton can poach the ball. Pierre Bougarit is a machine. Facunda Boss is the same. Uh, Winnie Antonio, Ray DeWardy, Danny Preso. They're only forwards now, OK? And then if you go, you have Dante and you have Batia. Uh, so if you see, uh, I suppose, how we set up defensively, we, we kind of change the position of our number 10 a lot. So we want him running the game and we want him fresh. So kind of keep him out of, the, I suppose, the the 
heavy goods vehicles, as I call them, running up the middle of the pitch. So, I mean, if it, the, the options for for uh, attacking teams would be your either. Um, and it was obviously a bit weakened without Carbarla because he's like an extra forward. So you, your options are either you run at Liebenberg, um, who will chop you, and you have uh, on the inside you have Bulgari poaching, and on the outside you have Dante poaching. If you go channel wider, you're going to run into Dante, and you have um, um, Bulgari inside poaching. So it's very, very, I suppose, m- methodical what. I suppose we put a bit, a lot of work into is just uh, the importance of collisions one and two. If you don't get them right against Leinster, you don't win the game. So for us, that was a big focus, trying to just, because they have a brilliant attack, we, we just had to dent them at the first uh, at the first collision. At, at what stage in the game are you happy with how it's playing out? I think the only stage I was unhappy was probably eighteen ten, and then the yellow card was like, oh wow, 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 wow. Um, so that's where you felt, um, you know, next score probably game over if it goes to 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 the boys in blue, you know. So, um, but I think. Uh, it was great to see, I suppose, some of the one of some of the key messages out from losing and learning and finals. The, I suppose, the ability just to for the boys to um, to play and express themselves and, and don't die wondering. Just uh, ha- having a go, and I think that was probably. Yeah, you know, we made we made errors with the ball, and we were inaccurate with the ball. Yeah, but I thought the the mentality of the players was interesting. They didn't get, um, what's the word, uh, tightened up or frozen by by execution errors. I think they had that willingness to throw the pass. They had that willingness to probably uh, go a little bit deeper with their kicks. That for me is very pleasing to see them express themselves on the biggest stage in Europe. And it must be so satisfying as well, having lost last year to Toulouse and now to come back a year on to have, I suppose, sorted out some of those wrongs, some of those things that went wrong and to have improved and to now say we've got over the line because it can hurt so much at that final stage and then to be able to come back and go, right, we we did something about that. Yeah, you've no idea. Yeah, there's no point saying otherwise. It's, it's exactly why you... Suffering silence and isolation for seven days after Toulouse, and uh, on on a double front too. You know, I think mentally uh, it has a huge impact um, getting beaten in back to back finals. So I mean, summer wasn't easy. Pre season planning wasn't easy. For last four to five games, starting the season. So you kind of supporters are going well yeah this probably guy is out of his depth you know uh, but I don't think the players panicked I don't think the staff panicked and um, you know to think that we went on a journey to, to Europe um, to, to obviously with, with uh, a very 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 narrow victory against a classy team uh, is very very pleasing and 
you know, I think for people that weren't there, Marseille, I, I didn't understand the history of Marseille and, and Paris uh, um, in the in the soccer. You know, I think when you over here, there's huge history and uh, it's a mythical stadium. The surface is beautiful. The stands, the, I think the way the supporters are are placed in the stadium, it gives it a great feel. The place was... Uh, and for... Um, a final, there was a lot of Leinster and La Rochelle fans. There wasn't a lot of neutrals, so there was a great atmosphere and Leinster fans had their moments, La Rochelle fans had their moments, but it was it was um it was a great atmosphere. Um but uh, I think from a venue, the venue added a lot to it, I think. I think it really really um felt uh like one of those special monster, uh, monster, sorry, special European occasions. <laughs> Freudian slip there. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, there are so many similarities to, I think, to, you know, the loyalty of our shell fans, monster fans, when you started off this journey, it was, uh, you know, I mean, Golov talking about, you know, you want to try and keep Toulouse under, under, um, under 50 points. Like, uh, I'd say less than 18 months ago, we got beaten 49 nil uh, in Racing. So, you know, that kind of, there isn't much logic to to what has happened since, if you look at that day. When you when you were talking about the, the uh, defeats at the start of the season, what were your own doubts like? Because, you know, you, you clearly are self-reflective and questioning everything even after victories you question everything so what was so two two beaten finals last year and then a, a slow start to the year what was going through your head um, genuinely I was okay you would obviously would have um, they were desperately difficult fixtures but I think for me um, I could see the hangover affecting people differently I think if you don't process well, you mean the depth of hurt involved in losing two finals? You've missed something. So for me, the start of the season was always going to be slow. Uh, and people make, I think, comparisons with French rugby when they don't really understand the template. It's an eleven-month season. All coaches are looking for intensity. It's impossible to have intensity for eleven months of the season. You're just—it doesn't work. You know, you're going to blow up. So I think what you learn with a bit of time is how to time your run and when you need to kind of push these boys and to put a squeeze on them and then the other times where you can cut them a bit of slack. So uh, I think what we've got right this year is we've been big on time off. I don't want to give them as much holidays and as much time away from the place as possible, which other people might go, well, whoa, they're on a bit of a freebie here or he's got, you know, his leash is too loose with these boys. But I think they they like that. They like coming, I think, in. And, you know, I mean, another lesson was kind of, I think, why Monster worked in my time was Cork Limerick. Everyone said that it'll never work, but it was brilliant because we only saw the Limerick guys twice a week, but there was always new stories. There was always freshness. There was always that... I think capacity to interest your teammate, and and if you have the same faces and doing the same routine day after day after day after day, it just becomes monotonous. So you try and break it up as much as you can, Jerry. You try and keep a spark with it, uh, even though you're whatever uh, approaching nearly forty games a year. But uh, I think boys like playing games; they're not really that interested in training, you know. 
And Ronan, talk us through those final minutes. How were you feeling? Oh, jeez, I just... All I could do, I just had my eyes on Wayne Barnes, you know, I just wanted to, I just was hoping that left arm wouldn't raise, but whatever way the play was going, if he was to raise that hand, I think it was, it was going to be penalty to blue, game over, you know, so you got to remember too, this wasn't a top 14 game where you kind of get an all freebie now and then from the referee, if if you're the home team. <laughs> <laughs> no chance. <laughs> so, like, this is one of the world's best referees on the biggest occasion of all. So if there's foul player going off your feet and there's a highly likelihood when you're kind of picking goal 50 times that you have the capacity to, to make that error with just one slip of uh, lack of concentration. But um, Skin Ryan has been working hard not all year. It was great, you know, that it came down to his kind of his play at the end um, and his detail uh, in his first year as a coach, which is phenomenal, really. That uh, you know, he, he's just adamant that the, the the quickest and fastest and direct way to the line is north. So don't don't be passing that ball out to those backs. <laughs> so <laughs> he just uh, the, it was good. It was really good discipline to have that capacity after eighty minutes to be able to to think like that and to know what they wanted to do and believe in it and um, I think um, you know it was still um, obviously incredibly um, nerve-wracking because even watching back the replay now I'm still kind of going is he going to give a penalty is he going to give a penalty you know so it just shows what I must have been live <laughs> Uh, did anything surprise you about the aftermath? Were there messages from people you hadn't heard of in a long time? Was there something? Yeah, it's been incredible. Yeah, people from all over the world, you know, it's been really touching, really, really touching. Yeah, it was. Um, people have come out of the out of the woodwork, you know, and uh, uh, it's been so powerful. Yeah, it, it was um, because I think when you're in it, you don't appreciate what you've what you've done, but it's important that you step back, as you say, and. If you're not touched by those scenes in the port, then you you know I mean you're, you're you're in the wrong business. You know it was it was very very special, Jar. Another special moment was with your kids and your family afterwards. They must be wondering. They they they're not my kids. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're. Uh, it was great actually. They're nephews and nieces, and oh. a few of my kids. I have five of them, so we wouldn't all fit into the one pick. But it was lovely. I could see where. Where uh, Jess and the kids, where my two brothers had kind of, uh, they're based in Dublin, so they've flown over five of them. They're, uh, it's Colin and Jennifer and, and their three kids and my brother and his wife. Uh, so they were kind of obviously in black and yellow on, on a flight all full of blue. So that must have been quite awkward. Um, but it, it was, um, yeah, I could see see where they were during the game. And uh I knew exactly after the game where they'd be, so it was nice to be able to uh, to uh, celebrate with them. And just a, a word about that, because you you brought your kids to France when they couldn't speak French, and then you uprooted them after they learned French to go to New Zealand, and then back to La Rochelle. In fairness, it is like one of the nicest places in the world to live, so uh, it all worked out pretty well in the end. But they've made sacrifices too, as you go on this journey, never quite knowing if it was going to work, and then here you are like one of the youngest now officially best coaches in world rugby 
I don't know about that, but I think the great thing from a family point of view is that Jess is happy, the kids are happy. Otherwise, it wouldn't work if she's wanting me out of my, I suppose, environment to get home. It just doesn't work, Jerry. You know, you kind of, it. the importance of, I suppose, that uh, balance between uh, her and the kids being happy, it, it, it makes me tick, you know. I think otherwise this thing flops completely. But as you say, um, I mean, the upside of it is it's beautiful, but uh, there are times when it's incredibly lonely and isolating as well. But Saturday, as you say, it's it's very different to being a finalist. I get that, you know. Yeah. Finalists is, sucks, you know, and, and uh, I've had that for the, for the last two. And... Um, I think just, yeah, when you kind of realise that um, your name goes on the cup, that that it, it brings it all all together nicely. Well, we keep score. That's the whole point of the sport. In, and I know you talk about the narrow margins, but the narrow margins are there in, in all the victories and, and all the defeats as well. It, it does alter the course of your career from this point forward because you've always got this in the bank now. It, it is kind of life-changing as a professional sports person to win things. Yeah, it is, and it was always, it took me a few years with the Monster Boys to realise it, you know, and um, I think you do, you are seen differently when you win things, and as you say, that's essentially what it comes down to, I think, the enjoyment and uh, uh, partaking is good, but the the animal, the competitor inside you that wants to be released, that needs to be... um, um, challenged there isn't a better I suppose moment than a final of a European Cup and uh, you know, you, I, I have to stress obviously I have a, a little part what you do need is a big part of buying and uh, it was great to see the boys uh, sticking sticking on task and, uh, and going hard for 80 minutes for for a team that was probably perceived by others to be not as fit but I, I don't I don't think that's that's the case I think um, they uh, they really uh, showed capacity to find to find a way to win well I've no doubt that uh, you did have a little bit more than a small part to play with that I, I think there's a very short list of people in the world that Leinster fans wouldn't begrudge the victory to you're at the top of the list so congratulations from a Leinster yeah, fan yeah that was nice there was, all of Leinster fans were were really decent even afterwards you know I think that's important to say that they were very very sporting it's, it's you mean if you love your team no matter who the other opposition is you got to be hurting but it would be remiss of me not to mention that too there was a lot of classy Irish people in France and on Saturday and um, uh, I think certainly uh, my brothers and, and, and I appreciated that Well listen congratulations it's a remarkable achievement and as you said the season's not over we wish you the very best of luck talk to you soon Yeah cheers thanks guys see you soon Cheers Ronan uh, I love in here on the comments Des Kirby says delighted for Raj Ireland first still sickened for Leinster though could you ask Raj if he would consider going to Leinster we'll do that again some other time <laughs> merci Raj says Jules Richard Marseille awaits you whenever you want in the future uh, Katie Daly says surely Ron Nagara has to be the Ireland next head coach well I mean we have a head coach at the moment doing pretty well so uh, that job might not be available 
Uh, Michael Buckley says O'Gara again being so transparent with how he works the detail of how he set up his defence is so interesting class act Jules Richard again O'Gara we love you in France brother Jim O'Sullivan as usual complete honesty from Raj class act all round and Conor Anthony Crowley says O'Gara is a rugby messiah the special one isn't like I still think we up until last week there was still a not quite full appreciation of the transformative nature of what he's done so early in his career Oh, big time. It's fascinating listening to him, the way he talks about his system and how he set it up and how, like, I'm just, like, in awe. Really am. It's it's amazing what he's done and such a likeable character as well. And I think you can get that sense even from watching the celebrations after and how they all ran over to him when he was doing his interviews. You know, you can see they have that buy-in as he spoke about him. That's so important. Yeah, very hard to give that up to go and coach the England team. You know, or whoever. Yeah. I think that it'd be great to see what what they could do there over the next couple of years because it's going to be much easier to recruit players too. Mm-hmm. The whole world is going to watch that and go, "I want a little bit of that." Um, so yeah, I don't think he's finished over there either. It's just beginning, as he said. Yeah. All right. One final reminder tonight: the football pod live. Paddy Andrews, James O'Donoghue, and special guests in the Royal Theatre in Castlebar. Uh, the football pod live in Castlebar. Tickets available. Uh, you can get it on Ticketmaster. Keith Higgins is a special guest. And you get the full details on otbsports.com forward slash events. We're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Tomorrow, Alan Quinn in the GA Quick Picks, Adrian and Johnny Ward in the Presenters Chairs and much more. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.